Hey, fellow tennis nerds, I hope all is well. I'm here today with a returning guest. He's been here, I don't know how many times, four or five maybe. Uh, we also talk on the side. He's one of my favorite guys to talk tennis to. And Nikola Aracic from Intuitive Tennis. Check out his instructions. One of the best online you can find. A really nice guy too. And how are you today, Nikola? I'm doing great. Uh, I want to make a quick correction. It's my third time on. I keep track. Yes. I'm now, I'm now even with Rick Macy. We're tied. <laughs> okay. as Great. the most appearances on the tennis nerd podcast it's very good very but good. thank you yeah, thank I... you thank you for having me on i appreciate it de nada de nada no i i know i talked to rick the other day and he wanted to come on again so he's going to be a, an arms race now it's going to be tough <laughs> okay <laughs> That's great. It's great. So, how have you been doing? Like, I've been following your um, your series uh, with the Felipe. Like, it's been very, very interesting. Like, being a player that's kind of in the Felipe area of of, of play, uh, I think it's been very fascinating to follow his his progress and and see how he's improving slowly. Right. Look, it's been something that I always wanted to do, and he came here for ten days, all the way from Brazil, and we played five hours a day. In addition wow. to that, we did video analysis and stuff like that. So there was 50 plus hours. And it was very challenging to put it all together in video format because I had a, a tremendous amount of footage. But I wanted to show what it takes to get better at tennis is to do a lot of reps, but it's got to be the correct reps. So you got to do a lot of problem solving, technical corrections, and then do the reps. And this works. Tennis is all about hard work and this is what i wanted to show so there's two more episodes left episode 11 and episode 12 and so so far people have liked the series uh, some videos have been a little bit longer than others because they needed to be i needed to show uh the process of improvement and other videos have been a little bit shorter so it was a lot of hard work it's very hard work to watch the entire thing but i think it's nice to see that if you put in the right type of work you get good results yeah, I think it was pretty clear as well. Like, I mean, you you really are so good at spotting uh, some deficiency, like quite quickly. I can tell from from the videos, even like that. You like, okay, this is your problem on the forehand. This is what's happening, and th then you have actually like a clear map of okay, this is number one priority to fix. And it seems to actually like you see him improving, right? Like, it's, and it, we haven't watched the whole series yet, but I it's pretty clear that with the hard work and he seems to be a pretty dedicated guy i mean he came all the way so he's ready to work uh you can actually improve like it's just about you you know putting in the time with a good coach so he definitely has improved and um i'm not i'm not gonna give away the ending but you can see that he, he's playing better than he did in the beginning he was completely lost with this game he is a player who started tennis later in life and he was a professional soccer player and he's very passionate about the game he has his own court in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and he just wants to maximize his potential. He loves the game, has the passion for it. And that is the most important thing for anyone to have the passion to want to do the work. And so when he showed up here, he was completely lost in what I call technique land, where he was making a lot of changes, drastic changes to his technique. For example, he considered, you know, changing his grip on the forehand, which was semi-Western to Eastern. He was changing his take back and he was doing all these changes and his game just kept getting worse and worse. And he became very obsessive on the mistakes that he was making. It got into his head, in other words, and he was not enjoying playing tennis anymore. But... Um, on day three of our series, we had really a big breakthrough 
um, where he found the passion uh, for the game again. He became a fighter again, and he began to give it 100% on every ball. And you can see that when you watch the first episode, you can see that he's kind of sluggish and he's standing still and he's very negative. But then when you watch the later episodes, um, you'll see that he's fighting like crazy. He's grunting. A lot of people complain about the grunting, but to me, it's a positive sign of intensity and, and trying hard. Uh, if it's uh, something that happens naturally, of course, you don't want to fake grunt ever, but if it's something that's happening naturally, it can be a positive sign. You can see that he found the passion again and the joy for the game because all of a sudden his strokes were working and he was motivated to keep going. And it's just a beautiful thing to watch. Now, when it comes to me spotting mistakes, it's just a lot of hard work as a coach that I've done over all these years, working with players of all levels, but especially with players at the recreational level. Because when I worked with my dad at uh, Tetsia Grünweiss Ahaus in Germany, he put me on a court at 13 years old uh, to teach lessons, private lessons to adults. So while I do enjoy coaching players at the high level, I even coach some um, professional level players, my specialty, so to speak, like what I did the most in my coaching career is the recreational level. So when it comes to spotting mistakes that are done at the recreational level, I've just had a lot of experience and I've seen it all. Now, on top of that, since I started doing the online coaching, I've done a tremendous amount of video analysis over the last past, over the past five years. And so um, I've seen a lot of different mistakes I have um, made videos about those mistakes, uh, not necessarily on YouTube. I have done some of it on YouTube. It's kind of a tedious uh, topic, so you can't do too many of those type of videos uh, on YouTube. They're very dry. But on my website, there's a whole section of videos uh, titled Problems at the Rec Level, where you can see the most common mistakes on the forehand, backhand serve, and so on, and the uh, solutions on how to fix them. So it's just been a lot of hard work and, and trying to find solutions for, for players at the rec level. So when you say I'm pretty good at spotting things, I've, I've seen a lot of these mistakes from other players. So when I see something like that, I can, I can spot it rather quickly because I've seen it before um, and I've corrected it before on other players and I, I try to correct it again with the same methods um, that usually work. If they don't work, I try other things. And uh, yeah, like I said, it's just been a lot of hard work um, working with players at the rec level. And um, the more I do it, uh, the better I get at it regarding, you know, spotting errors and correcting them. Yeah, but it's like there's no shortcuts to anything. And it's the same for, for him. Like he wants to improve his game. You are want to improve as a coach, like as well. So you've been putting in the work. Yeah, that's just there's no shortcuts. I think a lot of today what you're seeing is that people want you know, I get messages all the time like, oh, can you, I want to be on your podcast. I want to do this. I have a tennis thing, you know, because people want to take shortcuts, you know, and you need to build your own uh, skill set. You need to put in the hours. I don't think there's any shortcut to putting in the hours. You know, it's like whatever, it's a job. Like I, I worked in marketing for 20 years, you know, yeah. so it's like, you know, that you're picking up skills as you go along, whatever you're doing. But when it comes to his game, like did, when he changed his mindset, was that something you had to kind of, get out of him like in a way you talk to him you're trying to inspire him you try to get him to a more positive mindset because you know i mean we all know that tennis can be kind of a dark place when you're playing badly like it can be really tough to get out of that so let me address both of the things that you said first um the whole thing about 
um, quick fixes or quick solutions or, you know, wanting quick answers that of course doesn't work because the reality is that when I correct something, let's say on a forehand and, and that one hour lesson on, or in the two hour lesson, and then that same player goes to the match court, um, he's going to play exactly the same way that he was playing before that lesson. In other words, the forehand is not fixed. Okay. How is he going to fix his forehand? Or how is she going to fix her forehand is by repeating the new movement, whatever it may be, tens of thousands of times so that it can be memorized in her system. It can, in other, in other words, become automatic. And now it can be called, called off in a match without conscious um, thought, i.e. intuitively. That's really the only way it works. So it's identifying the problem and then doing it correctly many, 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 many times in a non-match situation. And, and that's how it works. So um, while there might be some things in tennis where the solution can happen rather quickly in one lesson, uh, most things uh, require time, patience. It also, of course, depends on the amount of muscle memory somebody has already stored. So if you're talking about a player that has had a waiter serve for 30 years, it's going to take a tremendous amount of work to get rid of that, as opposed to someone who maybe has had a waiter serve for a year or two is going to be less muscle memory there, so it's going to be easier. So um, you need to be patient and not look uh, for quick fixes, because ultimately, when you try the quick fix and you see it doesn't work, you're going to get down on yourself and there's going to be problems. Now, as far as, now remind me, what was the other thing you said? No, his his uh, mindset changed. Like, okay, was this thank something you. You had to push him out. Thank of you. Um, yeah, that was really huge, and unfortunately, we didn't have that captured on camera because um, I played a lot of sets with him because I wanted to test to see that where the technique is at. Because we did a tremendous amount of repetitions, and then he would play sets with me and other players. And on this particular day, which was I think day three or four. Um, I think it's episode four. I'm not 100% sure, but we played a match. And on this particular match, I was not mic'd. And you couldn't hear our conversations on camera, unfortunately. But when he got down 4-1 in the first set, and I saw, excuse me, I saw him kind of just playing in a way where he it didn't look like he was having fun. There was some sluggishness to his movements between the points that he was hanging his head and even between the points he was on his heels a lot and he was just not playing inspired tennis there was a lack of uh, intensity a lack of electricity and so um i had a long talk with him on a changeover at that 4-1 and I, I told him exactly what i just said and i explained to him that without this intensity he will not be able to improve his game and without trying as hard as on every single ball, what he's learning is going to be impossible because the facts are that footwork in tennis and intensity in tennis is the most important thing. Why? Because let's say you have the absolute perfect technique. You've learned it, right? And you've done it from a, from a stationary position possibly or for, from easy situations. And now you step on a court and you don't move. What's going to happen is you're going to be forced to improvise and your technique that you have, you won't be able to access it. You're going to lose it. And so that's what was happening to Felipe because of this lack of intensity 
why exactly um, this was happening early, um, it's not clear. But my guess was that he was so negative about his game. He was in a bad mood because intensity sometimes in tennis can uh, relate to happiness and a good mood, right? So when you're happy, when you're in a good mood, when you're positive, you're more likely to be bouncing around and moving. So after that long talk that we had, um, right away, he started bouncing around. Uh, like I said before, he started grunting more. He was on his toes. Now, interestingly, he also started getting more angry. Now, a lot of people will say that, you know, you should try to behave on the court, which I 100% agree with. You shouldn't throw your racket. I agree 100%. But with some players, when I see anger outbursts or screaming and stuff like that, uh, on some players, this can be a positive sign that they're engaged in the match and that the intensity is there and that the willingness to fight is there. And that's what I saw from Felipe after he was down 4-1 in that first set. All of a sudden, something clicked. And yes, he was screaming out there and he was he was really engaged in the match. But uh, we talked afterwards at lunch and he said, he said, I'm back. I'm back. Now I can play. Now I can fight again. And then throughout this whole week, we remembered this particular day, that particular moment as the most crucial moment in the entire 10-day uh, training training block because um, that moment made all the technical changes possible because now he was a lot more engaged. He was positive. He was, um, he was moving his feet. There was electricity there. And, um, and he played a lot better from that moment on. Yeah, I think sometimes it's, there has to be like a moment of self-reflection, whether that's a talk through yeah. you, like that you actually enable him mm -hmm. to see what he's doing, you know, because you can feel it yourself. If you're yeah. not energized on the court, whether it's a match or a training, yes. you're not really getting anything out of it. Like you're just like there doing, going through the motions, being yes. very passive. You're going to play shit tennis. There's no chance you're going to play good tennis. Like it's impossible without intensity. Right? Absolutely. Now, let me give you one example of uh, somebody that everybody knows, and that's Djokovic. So. If you just picture Djokovic losing one of these weird matches that he sometimes loses, even against Dimenauer recently, but just picture one of these Djokovic losses where he inexplicably loses to straight, in straight sets to someone that's ranked below him. And what's a common theme in these matches is a completely flat uh, emotional state of Djokovic. There is no screaming. There are no anger outbursts. And he's just completely flat. But when he's playing his best and he's engaged, there's everything. There's a screaming, uh, come on. There's even anger. And it's just, he's just more in the match mentally engaged. And um, a lot of players are like this too. Everybody's going to be a little bit different. Everybody's going to have a different you know, personality when it comes to the tennis court. But you could say that generally a lot of players... Um, you see signs like this, they can be very positive signs. When somebody's in the match, trying their best, and, and um, you see somebody like just going through the motions, you know, just kind of uh, flat out there, that's uh, generally a bad sign. Now, there are some players who just have personalities like that, and that's how they always play. And that's different, but those players are in a minority. So, you know, I've said this so many times on my videos that how important intensity is, how important, how important electricity is and footwork. Um, and that's definitely related to uh, your mental state, which has to be one where you are trying your absolute best um, on every, every single shot, every single point. Yeah, I, I think a common thing that, I mean, I've experienced that I think I've, I've heard other people as well is that 
you're worried sometimes that if you put in your best and you still lose, it's going to hurt even more, right? So I think that's something where you almost protect your own ego. Like if I don't give everything, I'm thinking curious in many ways here as a typical example. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying he doesn't give his best, but generally we've seen situations where he doesn't, you know, that's an example. But when you give your best, even as a me, as a kind of rec competitive player, I play an open, whatever. If I give everything I have and I lose, I feel like I should feel great, but there's also a worry that you will feel like, yeah, I, I'm not better than this. You know, you know what I mean? Do you have you noticed this? Well, I think that's an extreme example. Uh, when you talk about Kyrgios or Tomic players that um, have tanked matches, because that's an obvious thing. What I'm talking about is more subtle than that, because when a yeah. player is, is, is kind of flat in their emotional state and not necessarily trying 100%, it's hard because it appears that they are, but there are small little things that, and that are that are holding them back. So increasing that intensity is maybe uh, not going to be as obvious. Maybe it's like one to five percent increase in fighting and trying harder, and now it's a whole different player. So, of course, when somebody doesn't want to be out there and can't be bothered and is not fighting and not trying, like like Kyrgios or Tomic, that's that's an extreme example. Of course, that you know that there's going to be only one outcome and that's going to be you getting off the court in, in less than an hour and losing. But it's, it's of course, easier said than done. Uh, to um, give it your absolute best, it's very much a cliche thing. It's a lot more complex than that. But, you know, when you can find that where you are trying your absolute best and, and, and give it, it your all out there, that's truly the only way to maximize your potential, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I sometimes I feel like there's in tennis because tennis scoring system is so unique in a way. It's like yeah. you can start the match on a bad in a bad mood and you go down love three. Right. And then you maybe win one game, uh, even if it's uh, you hold your serve, and suddenly something clicks and you're you yes. want a bit more, right? Like it's 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 it could be a micro moment in a match where you just exactly. like you had two personalities in one set, you know. That's the thing in Absolutely. tennis, it's like so moody, you know. Of course. It's a, it's a roller coaster, you know. It's a momentum shift. That's that's what's so tough about it, you know. You you the scoring system makes everything a lot more difficult because certain score lines are going to evoke different things inside of you, different emotions, and um, to be able to deal with that, um, you're going to go through ups and downs, and and you just got to stick with it. But yeah, it's absolutely true that you can go from playing your absolute. Uh, worst tennis and being in a horrible state of mind to playing your absolute uh, best tennis and something just clicks all of a sudden or it can go the other way where you're playing uh, your best and then <laughs> something clicks goes the other way and now you're playing your worst uh, so it can go both ways that's what makes tennis so tricky you know yeah and it's, it's also i mean the mental part is so important when it comes to like you work with so many rec players like mental versus technical like there we all have technical deficiencies but yeah. I feel like many are also struggling purely mentally. Like they would increase their their match wins by fifty percent just by some mental tweaks or or mindset changes or intensity changes. You know. Yes, I do think if you want to say that intensity intensity is a mental thing, I agree with you one hundred percent. But especially at the lower recreational levels, it's purely a, a skill based game and the mental part. It doesn't really matter as much. Um, when you get towards the higher recreational levels, then of course it, it matters a lot. You know, when the technique is better, when all the fundamentals are there, uh, when the skills are better now, 
when players are more equal in that regard, um, now it's going to come down to to more of the mental game. And of course, when you look at players at the elite level, I mean, we've talked about this many times. You take a guy who's ranked, uh, or let's just say you you watch a futures final between two guys, and these guys, the way they're playing, they could easily be playing a 250, right? Like there's no difference. These guys are playing amazing. They're serving huge. They're unbelievably fit. They're ripping forehands, ripping backhands. It's going to be impossible to detect uh, a difference in skill. And if you think that you can detect a difference in skill, you're a liar uh, because there is not much difference in skill between um, that level and the level of the 250s, right? Um, so... When the skill level is even, it's got to co- come down to more of the intangible factors and and the mental game, so to speak. So uh, the simple formula is that the better the skill level, the more important the mental game is. The lesser the skill level, the less important the mental game is. Because if someone doesn't have a technique and is going to make a forehand or a backhand mistake on the second or third ball in every rally, or it's going to double fault, it's gonna it's it's gonna be irrelevant uh, regarding um, the mental game. It's purely a, a technical problem. Yeah, no, I agree with that. That's a, that's obviously like the more you more you, the better you get. That then other factors come into play, of course. Now, just can can lower recreational players or intermediates get nervous when they play matches? Yeah, absolutely, and they can get tight and all that, and start pushing and start double faulting. That can happen too, but uh, it's gonna be it's going to be less of a factor than technical deficiencies because when you have players um, competing against each other at the lower recreational levels with vast differences in skill, the player with the best skill set is always going to win irrelevant of their fitness or their mental strength or anything like that. So the the skill, um, in other words, the technique is the most important thing at those lower recreational levels. Learning that is, uh, is a priority. Do you mean technique also as like footwork, like in running? Because sometimes you yeah, see like on, sure. on on like levels like where you get like an athlete who's new to tennis. He's like yeah. played tennis two years, mm-hmm. and you have a guy who's not an athlete but he's played tennis six years. But the ex footballer, he's running down every point, although his his strokes are not so <laughs> developed, you know. Mm-hmm. And he wins because he's just better athlete, right? He's just better physically prepared for the the match. Okay. Can you repeat that again? So you're talking about somebody that used to play professional sports. He's a great athlete. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, per- that person is going to win against who? Like a, a, a intermediate tennis player, like who maybe he's, he's a little bit more technically developed in tennis, but it's not as you know athletic in ability in terms of just running down balls all the time. I don't. I don't think so. I'll be honest with you. I don't think it matters that much. I mean, of course, it depends on what level we're talking about. So if we're talking about more the advanced recreational level. I would say 4-0, right? Let's say 4-0, 4-5 or something like that. I don't think it matters so much because um, let's just say that you play against the absolute nightmare of every 4-0, which is somebody that's a dinker or a slicer or a pusher. Or, you know, that that in itself will be something that's hard to overcome when you don't have proper technique. That's going to be very difficult. Um, so your athleticism is not going to help you much there. You know, if somebody dinks you a ball half court and you have technical deficiencies, now this ball doesn't have any pace, it's short, and you don't have technique. So what you usually see is that 
players either dink the ball back and try to go for it. And when they dink the ball back, they're in these endless dink rallies and they go crazy or they go for it and they make mistakes and end up beating themselves. So again, um, athleticism in those lower um, uh, recreational levels is not going to be as much of a factor as the, as the skill level. Now, interestingly, you mentioned pro players. I don't know if you ever saw a Dwayne Wade um, take a lesson and he was hitting backhands. It was on Instagram. This is going back a few months. And Dwayne Wade is an unbelievable athlete, right? But you asked me a while back um, whether footwork is something that you have to learn. You absolutely do. There are footwork fundamentals in tennis. And when you watch this clip of Dwayne Wade, it's going to be hard to find now. But you'll see that he doesn't have any tennis footwork. He has more like basketball footwork. And um, it's... it's um, inf- influencing his strokes in a very negative way and he's not able to hit the ball cleanly so yes you when i talk about skill it's not only your technique your strokes it's also uh, your footwork you need to learn how to move on a tennis court properly yeah and weight transfer and kinetic chain and stuff tennis is one of the most difficult sports I, i've seen like yeah. there was an instagram account that got some traction now because there was one guy who was ex um, player of football i think football player that has gone into tennis played it only for like Two years or something about like Ochocinco? that. Maybe I don't know. I remember the the handle, but it it was it got like a lot of traction on Instagram as, as like a thing where he makes kind of like a tribute video to tennis, like how difficult tennis is. Like it, that's which, yeah. which is what all tennis players love to hear because it's a, <laughs> it's a nightmare sport sometimes. Listen, I, I would never call it a nightmare sport, but it can be a nightmare if, if you're doing it the wrong way. You know, it can turn into a nightmare. But it's a beautiful thing when you put a lot of work into something and you you get the results from it. And you get the results from it that will last you a lifetime, right? So let's just say that you do a tremendous amount of work, like, for example, Felipe has been doing all these years. And now you get yourself to be a 4.5 level player. You're gonna be 4.5 level for a long time before you before you know you get old and you can't move anymore. So you're gonna earn this level and you're gonna keep it and you're gonna be proud of yourself. So it, it, I would say that tennis requires a lot of patience, a lot of patience, but it's a very rewarding game if you if you put in the right type of work. It's very rewarding. Yeah, 100%. No, no, like it also gets more and more fun the better you get, right? So Absolutely. The more you play, that's why the addictive part of it, I think, is is that partly yes. just hitting balls is very addictive. It's such a nice yes. feeling just to hit a good shot yes. a, and have someone you're you're in a rhythm with. But as you improve, like yesterday, me and Daniel, who you know a little bit, uh, uh-huh. Rukowski, we were just doing drills yesterday, like a lot of drills, uh, short balls, doing different kinds of movement drills, just like very intense and 90 minutes training. Like both of us were like our legs were feeling it, you know, heavy. But right. Afterwards, you feel great. Like it was just like, okay, yeah, I felt like I improved this shot, and then we. It was just like, even if we did only we didn't play any points, we just did drills for like uh, ninety minutes. It was just like super fun. You know, we both leave with a smile, right? So it's a uh, it's a good feeling. I think it's it's phenomenal. And um, in episode twelve, the final episode with Felipe, I talk about at the end how fun tennis is, and to me, the most fun thing about tennis is the competition part, because. This is where it's like a gamble, you know, because you don't know how you're going to feel afterwards. So there's going to be an outcome one way or another. And you're either going to be on cloud nine or you're going to be absolutely distraught. And and I feel like that part, that part can be extremely addicting. Getting addicted to chasing that feeling of 
of beating someone that's at your level or, or slightly better. A very tense match where you were nervous before and then you come through it, you end up winning. You feel good afterwards, you know, and that feeling can be addicting. And, um, and that's what I personally love about it the most. Because I think hitting balls sometimes, you know, it's got to be the right person who enjoys that. Um, I do enjoy it too, but I know some players who don't like it so much. I'm sure that you've ran into players who don't like warming up. They just want to like do a two, three minute warm up and start playing right away, right? So there are players like that who, who really don't want to do that and just play, play, play. And then, of course, there's players who only hit balls and they, that's the, the thing that I enjoy the most. I'm more um the guy who doesn't like warming up warming up gets on my nerves uh, uh the 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 warm up i um will take like three four volleys two overheads i'll take um three serves which i don't recommend you know that's how you blow out your shoulder but i just want to go i want to play because to me that is the most fun thing about tennis is the, is the competition part well i i can agree in a, in a way i think some days you um like yesterday we did that the like, day before we played some points and stuff like it, it's just a mix but like the competition part when you I, I feel like the most fun is actually when you play tournaments you know that's just where I think okay. it's the most fun like when, when you actually have something I mean practice matches are they're very fun too yeah but like a tournament you really feel there's a lot on the line and mentally mainly it's not money you know prize money whatever, yes. but it's, it's like this you you have that drive home like uh, you play an open you you drive home you win a three setter that takes two and a half hours or you lose that one the last tie break you know it's yes. it's, it's a very different drive home <laughs> you know you have when you're in the car true. right true so like there's again there's going to be different personalities and everybody's going to be a little bit different regarding that there are some players who don't place as much value on a practice set or a practice match and they placed a lot of value on tournament matches. So it is true that I've seen super, super high-level players who play horrible in practice. They don't care. And then they go to a tournament and they play unbelievable, right? So that's definitely true that there, there is players like that. But I'm more of a player who, for me, it doesn't matter if I'm playing a practice set on, on court number 16 with nobody watching or if I'm playing at a tournament with maybe a 50 people there. They're watching in a tournament. So to me, it really it doesn't matter because... I got to answer to myself and whether I lose that practice match on court 16 or I lose the tournament match, I feel the same afterwards, which is awful. Um, I, you know, I'm in a bad mood. So um, to me, I can't accept um, losing in a way, regardless of the circumstance, whether it's a practice match or a tournament match, but other people can, you know, they're more flexible that way. They might be even more willing to experiment in practice matches and maybe try different things. Maybe they're, a baseliner and then when they practice they're gonna maybe serve and volley a little bit more and maybe that's gonna be um, a positive thing to their game but personally to me it's like um, i'm a super competitive guy and um and i need to I, when i'm playing i need to like try my best and i, I need to try to win or, or i know that if i lose afterwards I'm, I'm gonna be like you know asking myself some tough questions yeah, it's an interesting how how different. Like I'm 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 the more the like if I play a tournament, I will be a little bit more like okay, this is a uh, serious. But if I play like a, a like a league match or at practice, I bring six different rackets. I play our oh, first set. I play with this one. I test it, and then I then I do serve and volley with this one. You know, I, I don't really care that much. You know, but it, it's a part of it. But then if I play a tournament match, I can be a little bit more like then I'm get pissed with myself if I underperform. Right. Like, I get really like yeah, it's it's, it's okay. Weird. But that that's more work for you though. Don't you think that's more like your work creeping into your your yeah. pleasure with the exactly, rackets yeah, and yeah. testing, yeah, because yeah. you do this professionally. So, 
that's completely you're completely different in that regard because I generally don't recommend uh, <laughs> players having uh, like four or five different type of rackets in their bag. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't think this is good. Uh, there has been some players um, who have had different rackets for the return game and the serve game. Are you aware of this? Chris, yeah, one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what, there was one guy called Juan Balcells. Remember him? As well? Okay, yeah. He had a different racket for serve and return game. He would put it you know, towards the back of the court. And there was also a doubles player. Uh, I think his name is Martin. For, is it Fabrice Martin? I don't know. Yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah, if, yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't French know if guy, he's huh? still a French guy. He, play, he had a Babel Pure Drive for the serve game. He had a Babel Pure Arrow for the return game. No. Wow, that bad? Yeah. Yes. Oh my! You could, you know, Chrissy, right? He has two different specifications. Who is like this? He, he, Maxime Chrissy. He was. Oh, Maxime Chrissy. Okay, got yeah. it. Got it. Okay, got it. Yeah. Chrissy is the French way, I guess, because he's French. But I, I, he's now yes. playing for the U.S., so it's Chrissy. No, no, I know him. I know him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he, he, he always leaves a racket on the back, and I thought it was different string tensions, you know, because that would make sense in my head. Like okay. you have a little bit different tension on the serve, you get a bit more on the serve, but it was actually two different weights. Oh, so, really? uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With same racket though. Yeah. Same, Which, same. He had an Aero 2016, but he had them, uh, they a little bit differently customized for a servant. So always two rackets, you know, it's always one in the back. It looks weird, very strange, but it's... It does. Uh, okay. So, I mean, that, uh, it makes a lot of sense to do that. It makes a, a lot of sense. But I think, see, what happens for a lot of rec players, they, they, I've seen this because I look in their bags and I see what they, what they bring to the court and it's like... Three completely different rackets. Like, there's no rhyme or reason to them. You know what I mean? And then, no, no. <laughs> now they're switching between one and the other. And and, and I got to tell them, like, you know, um, which one works the best for them. And it's usually the one that they've been playing with uh, the longest. So that is not a good thing to do. The, the, when, you have, when you have multiple rackets and you're swapping them out senselessly. I, I think, like, I've had a negative uh, impact on the tennis world in many ways because I think it's like you, you, a lot of people are like, oh, I love bringing five rackets, four rackets, or three rackets, and and I, I know how bad it is. Like, I know how uh, – like, yesterday I brought, like, seven rackets because we were just practicing because I, I had a lot yes. of rackets to test. There's new speeds, new pure strikes, new blades, new percepts, new everything, like um, – and it's my life. It's strange. It's not normal, right? But, but I, I then play – I took one racket that I played the last tournament with, and I was like, okay, I feel great with this racket. So I, I didn't even touch the other rackets for the whole session because I didn't want to ruin that. Because I know if I start, it's going to go. Like my feeling of when I'm, I was striking the ball well, I was And which racket the ball was well. this? Which racket was this that it was feeling the best? It was a Pro Canics, 100 square inch Pro Canics. Of really course, the Pro Canics. This is your yeah. racket. Do you understand? Yeah, this maybe, is your I mean. racket. Every time I ask you uh, what's the best racket, um, you always say Pro Canics. This is yeah, your brand. It, it, <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. It's very strange. But it's like it was. It was the one I like. Okay, I felt I don't want to keep switching around now because we did that the other day when you had Hachanov's racket and we had the steams and we had like so okay. me and Daniel both tried different rackets. You know. Now but is it, it a is sorry? Is it a current Procanex model or is it an older one? No, it's a current one. You can get it now. Right? What's the name of it? Procan. It's a very bad name. Procanex KIQ plus five Pro. That is fantastic. That's why I love Procanex. You know, I used to be yeah. sponsored by them. When I was in juniors, I played with the Procanex as asymmetric, which is a weird racket. Do you know this one? No, no. It was, no? No, I, asymmetric. I, I, so, so the frame was asymmetrical, right? So you had the frame, right? So it was thin on this one side and thick on the other. Oh, and my then God. I the opposite on, then the opposite on top. Thick on top, 
Oh, you want to see it? I can bring it. Hang on one second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. All right. I'll, I'll show it to you. Know. I'll show it to you. Hold on. This has to be a... <laughs> you have to see this. Now you're going to see the greatest Procanex rackets in history. So look at the bottom here. You see this? Wow. And look yeah. at the top, top here. It's like thick uh -huh. here, thin here. Okay? And yeah. I'll flip it around. And now it's the opposite. It's, it's thick on the bottom, thin on top. But, but what's, the, what's the... I mean, that looks almost it's, impossible. It looks like an optical illusion to me. It's asymmetric, man. It's asymmetric. One of the well, greatest, what is it? Is it like aerodynamic? Is, one of the greatest rackets in the in history. I'll be honest with you, it makes no sense, and and I don't know what it's supposed to do. But back in the day, this racket like was amazing because I used to play with a Prince um, Graphite, and then I switched to a I think Prince Precision, the Capriati one. Remember this one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had one of those like things in the middle. Yeah, like a yeah, like a dampener that came inside the racket almost. Like uh, not, not the, the stabilization bar, like the stabilization bar, not right. this one here, but they had something here mm -hmm. made out of like plastic. You could see the strings through, see through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then my dad got me a deal with with Procanex, and I played with different ones, and I'm finally settling on this one. And I don't think it was this particular one; it was a blue one. And um, I always loved like super responsive rackets, like super high power, low control rackets. And it just suited me perfectly. And then from the Pro Canex, I was so used to that feel. That's when I started playing with the um, Wilson um, Hammer line with a bunch of different rackets from the Hammer line before finally settling on the Wilson Hyper Hammer 5.2, which I, is the racket I played with for like 15 years. Yeah, good. You got, got good muscle memory. Like, that's not what I'm getting. But yeah, yeah. So this was the one. Um, I've got some other ones here, but Let this was the, the. I've the seen one that one. It's very, is that... it's very ugly, I must say. Sorry, Procanix, but this like, what is this racing car driver <laughs> design? It's not me. And it feels good. You love that racket, huh? It's good. It's actually very good. Like, I, I, I think it's pretty responsive. It's also more forgiving. So I used to play with control rackets. This is 100 square inches. Got but it. it's 1620. So it's a bit more controlled, right? Okay. So you, you don't... 1620. Um, yeah. I think what's that's the, good. What's the RE? 66, 65, something? So it's a little stiffer. Yeah, and uh, what's the the balance? Is a headlight head heavy? Yeah, it's pretty headlight, but this is three hundred fifteen grams on strong. So, right? so, so it's a little bit heavier. It's a, a bit heavier, but it's a tad it's, heavier. If you balance it, I think I added, I matched them, so I added some weight. But if you balance it, oh, you don't see it here. But got it. Like it's quite headlight, right? Okay, yeah. that's nice. Handle heavy. It looks like there's nice specs. It looks like a nice racket. But no, I wanted to tell good. you, I must say it's very good. And but the thing is, like I had this discussion the other day. Now we're in the racket racket topic. Maybe don't stay here yeah. forever. But it's like um, I published a review about the Percept ninety seven D, which is a right. uh, three hundred twenty gram. And sorry for people who are only thinking ounces, but they are uh, on the website. You can check it out. Yeah, uh, three hundred twenty gram, eighteen twenty ninety seven square inch racket. So this is a okay. very demanding, high level racket. Both, it's... yeah, both no, Daniel and I play with it. Uh, Daniel, he plays with a customized Pure Aero VS. You know, he's a good player. He's a better player than I am. Okay. Uh, and but we practice and, and we have a lot of fun on the tennis court. And he said also like he's this is a racket he used to like, but he said he doesn't get enough power. Like he plays like you know high upper leagues in Germany and stuff like this. He, he he does compete, you know, and and he said he cannot get enough. You know, on clay it's like an it's a nice nightmare. I did the review. I said, okay, it's demanding racket. Uh, I think it's for very advanced players. I cannot bring my best tennis. I need a bit more forgiveness from the racket because when someone who hits hard pushes me in the corners, I don't have enough on the ball. Like my ball is going to go short and I'm dead meat every time, you know, and my serve is not going to have the same pop as it has maybe with the Pro Canics or something, right? 
So, but then people get pissed off because they feel like, oh, but this is a classic, a traditional racket. Like I, everybody, if you can't play with this, you're not a player. And I'm, and I'm like, I'm just saying, telling you that your tennis is most likely going to be better with an easier racket. This is just my opinion, you know. But everybody gets very frustrated when I talk about tough rackets to use for players. They they don't like using words like advanced, saying it's demanding. That's a uh, for tennis, many tennis nerds, they don't like this language. You know, <laughs> it's funny how it is. You want to ask, first of all, uh, you said earlier that, uh, you know, you're doing a disservice to players by having so many rackets on the court, which is a part of your job. Yeah. And, and, and I want to tell you that this is completely relating to what you just said. I recently made uh, two ra uh, tennis racket videos for my channel, and I had to do some research on models that are discontinued discontinued and it was very hard to find the racket specs so i typed in the particular rackets uh, specs on google and guess who popped up um, among one of the first searches it was the tennis nerd website and i couldn't tell you how many times this happened and you provide such a great service you go on the tennis nerd website and you find out information that is so difficult to get elsewhere you can't get it and you put in so much work so you do a tremendous job it's a tremendous value um, for the tennis community. Now, this, interestingly, uh, these two videos, not both of them, but especially one of them had to do with the exact topic that you just mentioned, which is racket weight. And I don't want to give too much away from this video, but the title is um, Exposing Tennis Warehouse. I'm not going to go any further. That's the title. Now, you can watch this video on intuitivetennis.com. It's already uploaded there, but it's going to come out on YouTube um uh, early in February, I believe. But I want to give you a scenario that's going to make a lot of sense regarding heavy rackets and the recreational level. So let's say that the force that you put into the ball is fixed. In other words, the racket will not swing by itself. The arm has to swing the racket. Is that, is that a correct statement? Yes. If I put the racket like this, will, will it swing on its own without me propelling it to a certain direction? It won't, right? So what happens is the following. When the movement of the arm is fixed, now this is going to be a hard thing to do in real life because it's hard to repeat the exact movement two times, right? But let's just assume that the force that you put with your arm is fixed. When you have a heavy racket versus a light racket, there's going to be a deceleration. So the heavier the racket, the more uh, the racket will decelerate. Now, people are going to be so upset at this statement, but this is hardcore facts. When you have like two cars racing each other, and it's exactly the same engine, same everything. One car is five tons, the other car is four tons. Which one's going to go slower? Everybody knows it's going to be the heavier one, right? Yeah. So it's the same thing with rackets. Why don't people understand this? So. Um, the reason why professional level players play with heavier rackets is that when they have a lighter racket, they are so strong, they swing so fast, they're such good athletes, is that a light racket will flail in the air too much and there will, won't be enough stability. So the mass provides stability. And more importantly, they are good enough to swing the racket fast consistently um, despite the racket being extremely heavy. So when it comes to the recreational level, 
there are a multitude of um, factors why this is not a good idea. Now, before I say why it's not a good idea, I'm going to say that there are some recreational players who can pull this off. Again, this depends on many variables too, but I will say that, that I'm not um, making an absolute statement. There's going to be some players who can play with heavy rackets, but generally speaking, when a player swings a heavier racket, they're are going to require more athleticism to do so. Now, if they don't have that athleticism, they're going to feel a discomfort. And it's not going to be, like you said, an easy racket to play with. It's going to be a discomfort. It's going to feel like the racket is dragging through the air, and it's going to be pretty much a nightmare to play with a racket like that. Um, uh, I'll give you an extreme scenario. Let's take a 12-year-old or an 80-year-old when you give him an RF-97 that's 340 grams on strong, and they're going to have a hard time because they don't have the athletic capabilities to handle such a racket. Now, a lot of the people that are very active in um, tennis equipment videos, they <laughs> they will say the exact opposite of what I just said. They will say that a heavy racket will go through the air faster and the exact opposite of what I just said. And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that it's very simple. Um, and I do go into this in great depth in, in my upcoming video, but they want to play with the exact racket that the pros are using on TV. And it's as simple as that. Yeah, I it's think as simple a, as that. Yeah, I think there might be a macho element involved. Like I, I feel like the comments some, on some videos yeah. when I, I try to help people, like because I, I know of so many players that are recreational players. Because if you look at how tennis changed also in equipment, it's like, Used to be very heavy, small head sizes. Everybody played with multifilaments or gut yes. strings. Now we have uh, polyester strings that give you extra control. We have more uh, large head size rackets with different types of string patterns to give yes. you control. Uh, you can string polys lower uh, and you still have good pocketing and control. So the equipment has changed quite a bit. The uh, game has also changed. There's a lot more different techniques that adds a lot more top spin to the ball and so on. Yeah. And some players who realize this, they go to a slightly lighter racket, a little bit bigger head size. And most comments I get then on the channel is like, okay, oh no, I improved so much when I realized like I can't play with this. Then sometimes the weaker players that are maybe quite new, like play two years, they're like, oh, but I play now with the Percept 97 and it's it's much better racket for me because they like the feeling also of being using more advanced racket because like, an, you know, you're in a, with an it's, iPhone Pro now, it's, it's much better. That's exactly what I'm saying. And that's pr the problem is also sometimes I feel like if you're if you can't generate enough topspin to control the ball because you have quite like a flat swing or something is off with the swing, then the smaller head size will make less balls go out because well, you don't control all, it with spin, you know. So go ahead. So first of all, when you have a racket that's too heavy, like so, you're gonna have to exert more force to hit the ball at the same speed as before because that racket is going to not accelerate more; it's going to decelerate more. Like that would be the example of the two cars. So what happens is when you are forced to swing faster and harder, your swing is going to become more inconsistent and you're going to make a tremendous amount of mistakes. So what I look at with rackets and players is, of course, I want them to play pain-free and I can't see necessarily whether uh, they're in pain or not. So this is something that goes on into the inside of a player and I just go with what they tell me. If they tell me they they they, they don't... They, they, don't experience pain, I'll take them for their word and I never ever will will make them change rackets or anything. Even if they're playing with a racket that's extremely heavy because like I said, some players will be able to pull off heavy rackets. But more importantly, I can see 
differences in the way they play depending on the equipment that they're using, rackets and strings. I can definitely see. And that's something that I often have done where players have demos, you know, three or four demos. And I tell them, listen, we're going to play uh, five minutes with each one. And I'm just going to rally with you and observe you. And I'm going to tell you exactly um, what's going on. Then I, I pull them in, I give them some volleys, give them some overheads, I let them hit some serves. Hmm. And I can usually tell um, which racket is going to be best for them. I can usually tell. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, this is something I've done for many years as well. Like I bring, let's say I bring eight rackets, six rackets. <clears throat> Playing with players of different caliber, sometimes there is like, yes. you know, my mother, father, they're, they're intermediate father, beginner mother. Uh, sometimes this guy is on my level, sometimes the guy is on an even higher level. Yes. And I always try to pass around rackets to learn more and say, hey, play with this, see what happens, you know. And, and from beginner up to the pro level, like to, to pretty serious pros. And you, you see a different output on the ball. You see a different stroke. Yes. You, you also, I also talk to them afterwards and some, and also the, the, sometimes the perceptions are surprising. Like, okay, one guy who plays pretty high level, he says, okay, this racket feels stiff because it's an 18, 20, 98 screen racket, thin beam, very difficult to generate any power. He plays with a low top spin. He's like, yeah, it's a stiff racket, but he plays with a pure arrow, you know, for example, that's technically stiffer, but it's just that the string bed is so dense that the racket strings bed stiffness is high, right? Like when we have hot channels racket here, we tried it yesterday. Yeah. As, H22. This is a very difficult racket to use because 18, 20, 98, and small sweet spot. I mean, for Hakachanov, he has fantastic technique. You know, what's the weight? Uh, it's around 340 grams. Right. Uh, so it's pretty common. 36 swing weight. You know. So it's pretty common among the pros that weight. And what's the? Is it? Do you know? Is whether what the balance is? Uh, I don't. I haven't checked the balance. I will check it. Okay. But it's about even balance. I think. Well, a little even, bit like yeah. maybe two points head light. You know, something like that. Yeah, so that's going to be a racket that requires a lot of athleticism um, for to work for a player, generally yeah, yeah. speaking. I think the only exception would be, and there are some players like that who have always used heavy rackets. Maybe they came from the wooden racket era and they've always used heavy rackets. And when they pick up um, a light racket, it just feels like a feather to them and they can't play. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty common, actually. Yeah. It, it can happen a lot. So these players, um, they can handle a racket like that quite, quite well. But I'm Talking more about the general, because those players are in the minority. I'm talking about more the general public. Yeah. You know, the, the the your typical rec player will have a really difficult time playing with a racket like that. Yeah, you know? exactly. And I, I also think there's now there's so many shades in between. So what, what my point of that video was nowadays, even if you're a player who likes you hit flatter, you want more control, you don't play, put a lot of spin on the ball, yes. you can still get like a dense pattern, hundred or even slightly larger head size even. Uh, that like I t we talked about the WTA before we started. The, the, this the, yes. the, the steam because you can see it's a steam because there's white grommets here, right? So there's, right, there's right. white grommets. This is a telltale. Yes. I think they're gonna stop doing them white, so people will see that it's a pro player. You see that? See that? Uh, see the bottom there where your finger is? Put the racket yeah. up a little higher. White, white. You see how yeah. you see how much wider that is? That's yeah, why yeah. I, how I Get knew my that. Finger in here. Yeah, that the, the, the actual blade, which is what that's supposed to be, the actual yeah, blade has a yeah. has a much thinner area there. And when this, all is those... the this is more like a blade-ish racket. You, know, it's you quite, see the blade, how much? You, know? you see the, how much thinner is the thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so when all those WTA players supposedly switched from uh, the steam to the burn, like Halep, Sweetolina, countless of players, um, I was looking close to the racket. We talked about this before we got on, and I, I noticed that there was actually the steam. So 
this is what I don't understand with Wilson, why they get rid of popular lines of rackets like the Steam. That Steam and add a Steam S version. Remember that one? Yeah. yeah. With the super wide spaces yeah. between the strings. Like there was such a popular racket. I don't understand why they got rid of it. But just one more thing on the topic of of recreational players and rackets. So what I was talking about before where I go on the court and I can see that one racket is the racket that suits the player best. Like I can mm -hmm. see there, there's, a, there's an ease of play, the strokes are looking better, they're, they're ex able to execute the technique more consistently and more cleanly. So this is where um, a channel like yours is so beneficial because it it's going to help players to find the proper racket and what I keep saying is like, you, you just got to demo as much as possible and you will find it. You will find it. Don't go blindly um, on the internet and just start looking at what, what looks cool and what this player is playing with. Because as I learned on the Tennis Nerd website, none of the players play with what you think they're playing with, right? No. So you just put up Kachanov's racket. It's not even the, the blade. It's a H22, right? So yeah, yeah. what you're trying to do by selecting a racket that your favorite player is playing with, they're not even playing with that racket. So you got a demo and you're going to find um, a racket that works best for you. And now what I say goes completely against, you know, marketing and all that, because I say that when you find a racket that suits you best, you just stick with it forever, you know, and that can be a challenge too, because racket get discontinued so fast. And I talked about the steam being taken off the market and explicitly so, and replaced by the burn many years ago. So players sometimes are forced to switch rackets, you know? So what I've, personally try to do is get as many as possible of places like eBay and stuff and just stock up on them. But um, there's really, when you find a racket that suits you, there's really no reason to switch. You're only going to make um, complications, yeah, possible tennis elbow, yeah. possibly playing worse. But some players, I think they're more looking towards a racket to be the game changer. And it's generally not at the rec level. It's, it's not going to make that much of a difference, but Yeah. I mean, it goes against marketing. I know that, but as I said many times, like try to avoid changing rackets unless you have to. Yeah, it's crazy how the um, the the kind of deadline. I mean, now they they release rackets like within two years, some brands, three years, other brands. Now we had the pure strike from Babola that that took actually five years due to COVID and whatnot, you know. Uh, but overall, like I always said, like if you can play with a racket for for ten, fifteen years, I mean, I'm sure you're gonna play like you said, good, better tennis. And you're going to also have like a peace of mind because I think a lot of players now that I, I, you know, deal with some pros and follow the pro tour relatively closely, especially with gear, is that you see as soon as they start to switch and tinker around, they can enter quite a dark period, right? Because if your your livelihood is winning tennis matches and you're like, oh, t today I'm, I played with this string for a month, it might not even be enough for the muscle memory. Like, I mean, okay, a string you can maybe pull off. But like some guys, like it took Federer a, a year to change a racket before he had any results that was worth mentioning, you know? So it's like yes. on, uh, the muscle memory should not be, and like you said, like they have millions of, of hours with this, like uh, with that racket. So for them, it's even worse, you know? But if you play with a racket five, 10 years, this racket is a part of your arm now. So if you change it, suddenly your arm is different now. Listen, so you have to... It's so complex the way your hand most importantly, and your whole body gets used to certain equipment. You're not even aware that it's taking place, by the way. So I don't know if you noticed, but I've been giving some lessons with the Gamma um, RZR Bubba yeah, 117. Yeah. You saw this? 
Yeah, yeah. And, and people are going insane. Like, they're like, why are you playing with that? That's 250 grams, right? But it's really nice to feed 50 grams. I didn't know it was that light. Yeah, because that's not the real Bubba. The real Bubba mm. is 137. Mm. Yeah, I know this that is, one. Yeah, I, I this, do know this is the Bubba light kind of. Yeah, this the, this one, is the yeah. Bubba light, mm. uh, which is lighter. I think the real Bubba is like maybe around 270 or 280. That's 29 inches, right? The, 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 the big one, right? That's 29 inches, I think. I think it's 29. Which one? The big one? Yeah, uh, I, think it's, I think it's, I think I think it's really it's, long yeah, and big. It's yeah, 29 so. inches and 137 square inch racket head. It's Crazy. insane. It's yeah. insane. But um, yeah, anyway, so <laughs> this is so this is so weird, but this is tennis, okay? So I've been um, giving a ton of uh, lessons and actually playing with that racket. And I even play against a, a really good player um, because that player insisted on playing a set after a practice. And, um, and so when I then switched to my regular racket, which is around 300 grams, I could not get the ball past the service line. Okay, I felt like I was swinging like the the Wawrinka racket, uh, nine, whatever whatever that's called. I could not get any nine depth. I, I I couldn't get the ball past the service line. I was like, oh my goodness, like I ruined myself. What did I do? Why did I play with that with a gamma? While I was playing with the gamma, everything was fine and it felt okay. You know, on a teaching teaching tennis level. You know, not on a playing for real level, but because. I played with it for so long. When I then switched to my regular racket, it was ruined. But the good news is that I um, then continued playing with my regular racket. And after maybe three days, it was back to normal. So that feeling of not being able to swing and um, get the ball very deep and the racket was feeling heavy, that went away and it felt normal again. So this is the thing that people have to realize that you, you get used to your equipment. You do. Um, and it's something that, um, that's super tricky. It's very tricky. And your perception of what things are like are based on your muscle memory. So generally a 300 gram racket is not heavy, right? That's a lighter racket, but because I was using something lighter before that 300 gram felt super, uh, super heavy to me. Right. So this is just super complex thing. Yeah, it's funny with that. Like, and that, that's the problem. That's what I tell people. Like, if you keep switching, since I am in that eternal hell of like switching, testing new rackets all the time, um, I know what it does to my game, right? Like, I know that it's tough to build. You need to have either a reset frame or at least like two different ones that you know, okay, I'm this, I'm home here. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. you have to have a home. Otherwise, you're testing, you know, now there's, there's racket release period now, Australian Open. Um, all the brands want to have a new new line out, right? They want to have an upgrade so that they're on top of people's minds when new players enter. Also, like all the new players now get different cosmetics, right? So they show up, okay, some pros, they switch rackets uh, because like they lost their sponsor or they just wanted a new contract thanks to their agent and so on, right? So it's, it's a time where people buy new rackets. Now is the time I think we will see a lot of people like, oh, I bought this racket, you know, for Christmas. I got the gift. I wanted to upgrade to the same racket as my favorite player has, the new cosmetic, whatever. So, uh, and then the whole process of just getting used to it is, is starting, and and it's it's a uh, it can be madness, you know. It's, it can be really like you can lose your game for like a month, and then you go back to your old racket, and then you have to rebuild, you know. So it's it's. Uh, but look, it's there's got to be there's got to be a reason why you want to switch rackets. It can't just be out of the blue. Um, just because it's Christmas, there's got to be a reason. Maybe your old rackets are worn off because that can happen. A year, a racket frame, if you play with it a lot, it does wear off and it does change the way it plays. And 
it might be a dead frame. You know what I mean? Even though it doesn't, even though it doesn't have any cracks in it. So if that's the case, you got to switch rackets. But maybe you're playing awful. Uh, maybe you're looking for the racket to suit your game a little better. It makes a lot of sense. Or maybe, most importantly, you have pain um, anywhere in your arm, and selecting the correct racket to relieve some of that pain is super important. Um, and in those circumstances, it makes a lot of sense to switch, but just switching the rackets for the heck of it, like all the time, it's a very bad idea. It's a very bad idea. And it's, it's only going to cause problems. Yeah, hundred percent. I can say that. And like in a lot of the guys who I talk to the test rackets, whether they are racket designers for some brand or they're tennis warehouse people, you know, the test, yeah. all the rackets and stuff they often have some arm issues or something because like it's not good for your uh, muscles uh, to keep testing so much you know I, i've been lucky because i mean i do gym four times a week to strengthen you know forearms and muscles and stuff uh, that helps a lot to stay injury free right that helps me quite a bit uh, but so then it's it's fine for me to test i don't i don't get like arm issues really anymore i mean been lucky with that stuff because right? you're used but, to it you've done it so much i think your body's used to it yeah, but yeah. i My think body knows that there would yeah. be something new here you know of course but i think a major cause of tennis elbow is switching rackets just um ir- regardless of the specs of the racket just the uh, just the sheer um, action of playing with something different can cause problems. And there's only one time in my life where I had tennis elbow pain. And that is, it was shortly after college. I was teaching tennis in Rockford, Illinois at the Clark Tower Racquet Club. And um, I forget the name now. I would give him a shout out. But it was the Wilson rep for the Chicago area. And he gave me a contract, you know. And so at that particular time, the racket that was popular or that just came out was the encode remember the encode mm, and it was the and it was the one that the uh, brian brothers were using but it turns out when i later on moved to hawaii and i actually the brian brothers were practicing at my club and I, they actually were playing with the wilson pro staff but that's besides the point but i selected the brian brothers encode racket and because i thought it looked cool and it felt pretty decent and i gave lessons with this thing for like maybe i don't know half a week or something like that and i started experiencing horrendous pain in my elbow like excruciating pain i couldn't even like like work the gear shifter in my car like it was really really bad yeah it was really bad pain so i said you know what like this is pretty easy to pinpoint where this pain came from it's obviously the racket you know because i'm using the same strings i'm nothing changed except the racket i went back to my wilson hyper hammer 5.2 and i guess what happened after one day of teaching lessons and hitting with that racket, the pain in my arm miraculously disappeared. Now, here's the unfortunate thing is that I had about 10 of these uh, Wilson Hyper Hammers. While I was in college, my dad kept sending me some. So I was stocking up on this racket pretty good. And so I had about 10 of them. But I was so, you know, so like decisive on switching rackets that I gave nine of these rackets to one of the, this, these kids at the club to sell it on eBay. And the, the kid immediately sold all of them. And um, and so when I then decided to go back to my my Hyper Hammer, I only had one left. Uh, yeah. yeah, still good. So, so then what happened was then I became um, 
like a like a hunter for rackets on the internet and i started going on all these websites especially ebay and i did get my hands of a bunch of wilson hyperhammers 5.2 but it came it became increasingly uh difficult and um this is actually a good lesson for everybody watching because two of my rackets that were my favorites were so used up that on my rackets i don't know how it is with you you but like just a corner of the racket gets used up on top. I don't know if that's probably from the back end slice, but it's like right here gets eaten up. Mm -hmm. And 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 the more I play with the racket, the more severe it gets eaten up. And on these particular hyper hammers, it was so like destroyed that part of the racket that, that the frame was like this thin and you can see the insides of the frame. So the racket completely de uh, deteriorated, but I continued to play with it until the bitter end, but it didn't play the same. And so I was basically forced um, to switch because, um, first of all, I couldn't get them anymore. And um, and the ones that I still had were basically unplayable. The frames were dead. And so that's when I, I started testing a long process. You know, you want to talk about like um, finding the right racket, it took forever. And I tried everything. I tried pretty much everything before settling on the, there was a Pure Drive um, Plus, uh, the regular mm -hmm. version, the 300 gram version that I settled on. So, um yeah, that's my tennis elbow story. Yeah, but it's, it's a good it's a good learning. I think it's like I never had that bad like tennis elbow that that, that where I cannot drive, but I, I've had like where I feel like the forearm is so stiff that that it's it's like it's it's making regular things in life a little bit more. You feel a little bit discomfort. It's not pain, but it's discomfort, right? It's like, but I've been lucky in that sense. But uh, you you have people like I get messages all the time where people are like, I can't, you know, they have to take six months off for painkillers and it's like this uh this thing so it's something to it's, really take seriously right it's a really really annoying pain and it makes you know we want to have fun playing tennis so you're not going to have fun with tennis elbows it's not going to be fun you know no. it's a horrible thing and you got to do everything possible to prevent it and if yeah, you have it that, to get ri get rid of it yeah and strings My kid, uh, yeah strings right gear but also like uh, technique preparation yeah. technique Technique, technique exactly. Too. Technique too. But um, in my case, what we're talking about now is like the, you know switching rackets. That's what caused it. You know, so you gotta be very careful with like with with switching. So, yep. Something to I keep in mind. I agree. I say that all the time. But then, then the some a lot of people who follow me thinks the half the fun is the switching. So it's it's also a tricky <laughs> tricky thing. And, and one thing I, to relate to what you said, yeah, which I talked about with my buddy Henrik, is also a chronic racket switcher. You know, he's like he, it's that. If you have a racket you play with, like what happened to you, you're like, oh, I'm going to switch now. And you sold all the rackets you had. And you had a bunch. Like most people maybe have two or three, you know. Yeah. But it happened to me many times like where I have a racket that like, okay, I play well with this, but I want something new for whatever reason. I'm testing something. Something feels a bit better in the moment. Uh -huh. and then I sell those. And then you regret it. And you're like, you were stuck without rackets. Like it's not easy to go back. You have to start chasing on forums. Maybe they're not available on, on the typical retail sites, tennis warehouse, whatever. So you're, you're like then regretting it big time, especially if it's an older racket. So oh, yeah. uh, keep a racket that's been your standard racket. Don't go for the easy bucks if you don't need them desperately, because I think it's better just to keep it. You know, it's, it's not it's not worth the, the money to sell it. It's definitely uh, a mistake to sell rackets. And I learned that the hard way as I you know, told that story from before. But yeah, just hang on to the rackets. But something else you mentioned, there's these record collectors out there and I'm certainly one of them and that's a whole another like hobby so to speak and and it's fun to have different rackets i have all kinds of rackets and it's also fun to play with them so um that's 
fine. But then when you actually are playing matches, now you got to take your favorite. Like in your case, if you had to play a match uh, tomorrow, like which racket in this match was super important, um, which, uh, I'm guessing would be the Pro Kennex you would choose, right? Yeah, from today, yes, that would be, yeah. yeah, that would yeah be so awesome. I think it's okay to have a ton of rackets, but then have that one racket that is your, actually your playing racket, you know? Yeah. I think that's 100%. Like one that you go back to and you feel like at home. Like exactly. Sports, for example. Exactly. Yeah, and for your case, like since you went, I think the one you used, the Hyperheimer 5.2, that was also uh, slightly extended. So you went to the Plus, you had a little bit more even extended the racket, right? Because okay. the Plus is 27.5, yeah. Okay, so so I don't know if you know that, but the Hyperheimer 5.2 is longer. Yeah, that's what I mean, like 27.25. Oh, you did, yeah. oh, you did say oh, This is yeah. unbelievable. How do you know this? I know this. Stuff. This is why you're the GOAT, you understand? Like, yeah. do you know, like, nobody know, knows this? Nobody knows this racket. It's been like... No, no, I know this one. I mean, I think, like, this is a racket that uh, was the foundation of Kini Shikori. Of course. Hardan, Hardan. It's the same mold as yeah. the age 22 you're talking about, the Kachano no, racket. No, age 22. This is, this is, they call it, um, it, it, they have a different name for it. I will, I will remember it. But it's like Wilson, but, yeah. But it's an Ishikori, correct? Nishikori, but he did never play the H22. He played with this. This is a What's 95 screen. What's it called? What Nishikori had? He used a hammer, but it was the pro stock name. I, I don't, I'm blanking. What was the name right of it? Now. Age something, right? So that's what I'm saying. Like that the Nishikori mold was exactly the same as my Hyperhammer mold. Yep. Exactly the yep. same. It was stick on the same places, same beam exactly. with same racket. It was a 95, same mm -hmm. length. So it was the same racket, but obviously I actually tried that one, the Nishikori one. It was a lot heavier. It was too heavy yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah. Mine was I like Asarenko also used this, and uh, and the Harden, Henning Harden. So yeah, that's why I say. And you know who else played with this for a little while? Todd Martin. Ah, yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. It's yeah. a good serving racket. Like it's a very nice because it goes through the air quick, and yet that extra length helps the pop on but the serve. But that's what that's what that's what um, that's probably the primary reason why I liked it because the length helps your serve. So that's why I like extended rackets. Yeah, but again, for your game, it makes a hundred percent sense, you know. And I think for a lot of players, it could be like if you're big on the serve or like you play a double-handed backhand, like it. Yeah, it, it's possible to use a, uh, an extended frame. You get a bit more with it, you know. So, it's, but you're not seriously uh, like you're being modest now. Um, but to have the length of a rack of a random Wilson record from like 25 years ago and to know the length, 27.25, which is 100 percent correct, to know that, this is impressive. I'm very impressed. I'm just want to tell you that I'm very impressed. The depressive or impressive, we'll see. But <laughs> I know that one. <laughs> I, I also actually, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But, I know, but I, I also, I've tested all the rackets, man. Like, so I, I know okay. that racket because it was one of those rackets that I really liked. Yeah. It was not the Hyper Hammer, but it was the one that came after uh, the N, um, N Pro. N Code. Yeah, the N Code version. Yeah. 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 That but one it, I didn't this, like so much. No, no, it, it felt different, right? Like this one is a bit stiffer, the one you played. It was the same mold. It had a different paint job. It was like definitely more of a glossy paint. And it was mm -hmm. orange and orange and white. And I remember yeah, my I dad... I have two in the closet here, yeah. Yeah, my dad liked this rack and my dad played with it. Um, I did not like it because it was a little bit different. So I never but you really... also like a bit of a firmer racket. Like that's probably been your thing. Like you like a bit of a stiffer racket, right? That, that was softer. Always, because I like, ultimately, I like responsiveness. So, like, to me, I like a powerful racket, as powerful as possible. Um, I don't like a dead racket. And when I play with a dead racket, I, I don't like the way the way my strokes feel. You know, I want to mm. I wanna do very little effort on the court. Because I like, I like to bunt the ball. My swings are, 
you know, they, they have a tendency to be long in the back, short in the front, uh, some of them. Um, so I like responsiveness. Now, on the other hand, my technique um, probably suffered somewhat from that um, preference that I had. I think my game would have benefited from playing with a typical modern racket that's more headlight and probably a little bit softer, more low power, and probably more uh, a string that's low power as well, like hollow power, you know, something like that. I think I would have been forced to have more of a fuller um, swing path uh, and not not have the ability to play like I do sometimes where I'm just kind of bunting the ball around and stuff like that. Um, I think I would have probably benefited from different equipment. Uh, I'm honest enough to admit that, but um, it, it, my preference is what it is, you know, especially when I'm teaching, I, I want to do, I'm just completely, I don't know if you ever saw me hit when I teach, but I'm just bunting, yeah, of course, right? Yeah. So when I have a racket, that is not very responsive. When I'm bunting around. I just don't get enough out of the racket. I want the racket to play for me in a way. So that's always been my preference and, and always will be. But it's not necessarily the best for my game. I just want to put that out there. It's like I probably put, could benefit from a different specs. But um, yeah. The it's funny just, thing with this, yeah, yeah, sorry to interrupt. But the funny thing uh, is like with, because uh, I know a lot of coaches, right? And and uh, pretty high level coaches. And, and they, a lot of them, like they have, a racket the the coaching drives them to an easier racket because like you're doing so much yes uh, so much hitting and you want to minimize effort right so you can't obviously Absolutely. do full swings on your coaching and sometimes you just want to block the ball back and the ball still gets a, a decent and it's also that thing where where if you just block the pace will not overpower the other person who's not as good hitting it back to you so it's like a, it's almost like you have a coaching racket you know it's some some I, people i know do that they have like one racket for coaching one racket for playing well, here's but the fact. You know. Like a racket that's low power requires a fuller swing. Okay, there's absolutely no argument about that. And so, what when you're teaching, you're not taking full cuts on the ball, especially when you're playing with 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 um, low level players. So, what are you doing? You're feeding or bunting or you're volleying back. So, obviously, those type of rackets they're going to be a pain in the butt to teach with. Um, it's much easier to take a gamma uh, one seventeen and just tap the ball and the kind of the ball flies on its own. So you're going to do that eight hours a day. It's going to be a lot easier than doing it with a, you know, with a super dead racket where you actually have to, I mean, you can do the same thing. It's not that big of a difference, but you do feel more effort and it becomes tedious after a while. So you're right. There is definitely a, such a thing as a teaching racket. No doubt about it. Yeah, I think so. I think it makes sense. Yeah. I want to, Get into like, cause I mean, you're doing these um, Monday morning rants. You don't call them yeah. rants anymore. Uh, I do, I do. I call them Monday morning rants. All right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We discussed <laughs> that a while back, and we have. I mean, I know you're a big Rafa fan, as, as am I. And yeah. uh, he uh, pulled out now the Australian Open, but there was some like me and uh, my my tennis friends. We were discussing this, like, wow, Rafa is back. We were watching some of his tennis, and it looked like vintage Rafa, right? Uh, yeah. It was was impressive to see. What what is your overall feeling like? about his chances for this season, you know, based on what you've seen so far? Unfortunately, it, it's all um, down to how his body will react to those brutal rallies that he's going to be exposed to the better the level of the opponent gets. It's going to be down to that. If his body can withstand that uh, you know, pain, so to speak, because ultimately it is it is pain to play tennis at that level it's it's excruciating it's exhausting but 
you know, his body has been through it. Um, he's older and there's a high risk of injury, not only his hip, but other parts of his body. Because I made a video a while back titled Tennis is Unhealthy and I listed all the injuries that Rafa has had and it's pretty much his whole body, you know, it's different body parts and any of those parts can get re-injured. Now, I think he is a little bit more prone to injury than other players. So unfortunately, it's going to come down to that. When we're talking about his level of play, I do feel like there was some rust, but more in the important moments um, in that quarterfinal against Thompson where he missed balls on match points that he would never miss. So that was more of a mental thing, but I felt like he, the way he played in that tournament, if you imagine that style, once he gets more matches in his system, once the confidence goes up, he's going to be difficult to beat on clay. And he's going to be a force to be reckoned with. I think he has a chance, um, of course, to win big click or titles, um, even the French Open. I do believe that. I really do. Because that that's just such a horrendous opponent to face, Nadal. That forehand is such a nightmare. You know what I mean? Like, just imagine that spin going to your backhand, whether you have a one-handed backhand or a two-handed backhand, and if you have to do that nonstop on clay where it's harder to make winners anyway, it's an absolute nightmare. And as long as he's healthy, as long as he's fit, he's going to have a chance to take big titles on clay. Now, I even think that he can take do some good results on hard court. I hate when he gets like... Man, there's so many trolls on Instagram. I don't know if you're on Instagram or on Twitter and that, that, that are insulting Nadal. They're not showing any respect to him. And I haven't seen that, actually. Yeah. You haven't seen that? You haven't well, seen on, on Instagram? On Twitter, like, I'm, I'm, very, I'm often not frequenting. So, I mean, I post and I go. Well, a bit. There, there's, a, there's a lot. There's quite a bit. It kind of depends who posts it. So, if, if it's Nadal posting it, it's definitely less. There's a lot of love, a lot of his mm. fans because they're huge fan base but if it's just a tennis tv or eurosport or or tennis channel posting something that's where you see the trolls mm -hmm. when they post a clip of nadal uh, he's done you know weak doll clay doll he should return like just trolls right so often what i hear is that he's not good on hard court and on a recent rant i said that if you took clay out of the equation for rafa and you only counted his grass and hard court results he would still be inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. And um, his career would equal the ones of like Bielander, Edberg, Becker, like legends yep. of the game. So he is not really a clay court specialist. Of course, he's the greatest clay court player in the history of the game. But he's unbelievable on, on grass. Do you remember Raf, young Rafa on grass? But even like in 2022... He would have made that final. He would have beaten Kyrgios. I don't know if he would have beaten Djokovic, but he always has a chance against Djokovic on uh, clay and grass, I feel. On hardcore, sometimes he gets blown out, but um, he's an amazing grass court player. Five Wimbledon finals. Um, so he is, of course, unbelievable on hardcore too. How about those US Open victories where he even beat Djokovic? You know what I mean? So, like, he, he's an amazing, like, <laughs> I just love watching him play. And, uh, I, you know, I just wish – see, the thing is, like I was thinking about this recently. I'm a huge basketball fan. I used to even play basketball. And my favorite team of all time was the Bulls in the 90s because I'm a huge Jordan fan. I'm a huge Dennis Rodman fan. And I'm a huge Tony Kukoc fan who's from Split Croatia. I'm from Split Croatia. So I love that Bulls team. And 
this was I was still in, living in Germany at the time, and they were broadcasting all the games. And man, I was watching those games, and I, I, I love Jordan so much. And of course, he won his sixth um, NBA championship, and he made that game-winning shot against Utah on the road, right? And that was like the perfect retirement. But when I was in college, um, it was in the early 2000s, Jordan decided to come back and play for the Wizards. And now, of course, he didn't. the team wasn't that great, and Jordan was older, and he wasn't the same player. So he kind of ruined his retirement a little bit, right, because he came back. So this is the difficult thing about retiring. As I said in my latest rant, Sampras did it absolutely perfect. He just called it quits after winning that U.S. Open where he had a subpar year. I think it was 2002. He lost to George Bostel in the, I think it was the second round of Wimbledon. And he was I remember that, yeah. not regarded as the favorite for the U.S. Open. People were calling him old and slow and, you know, uh, just similar to what Rafa is getting now, right, from the trolls. So he comes in there and he plays unbelievable. The guys that he beat in that tournament, I think he beat Radic, and Radic was on top of the world back in those days. Um and I think he beat Safin, if I remember correctly. He beat unbelievable players. He beat Haas, I think. I, I don't remember it exactly, but I know he beat Radic. And, of course, he beat Agassi in the final. And he just calls it quits. Now, can you think of a better retirement than any sport? It's, it's beautiful, right? So that's what you wish for your favorite player to do. Now, it's probably going to turn out that Rafa should have retired after winning the 2022 French Open. Because... If his body continues to break down, um, it's going to be kind of a sad ending to it. You know what I mean? So yep. that could easily happen. I wish and I hope that it doesn't, that his body holds up and he's able to play. And this injury that he has now, it's not as bad as the other one. It's just a micro tear in a muscle, which heals fast. So it's everything is cool. Everything is good. But I just hope that he stays healthy and... <laughs> I hope that he he wins the Olympics, and and then he just goes calls it quits, and that would be a beautiful ending to the to the story, um, and that's what you wish for your favorite player to do. You hate to see them kind of fall apart at the end. Um, it kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth when you see a legendary player like Murray, for example. Um, you know, get so much hate online. You, Mm -hmm. Or some of his matches, like for example, when he lost in Paris to Dimenau and he smashed his rackets, and when he lost to I think to Safiulin to in uh, Beijing, and he was also screaming. And you read those comments; it's just sad. Like this guy is one of the greatest players, and the in the last maybe you know twenty years or so, um, the guy deserves the respect. But you know he's losing all the time, and uh, people are writing negative things about him, and uh, you hate to see somebody. Uh, something like that happened to someone that's as great of a player, but ultra competitive athletes, you have to respect their choice to keep competing at all cost. You know, like Jordan came back, you know, I was there yeah. watching those games for the, for the wizards. When he came back, I watched every single one and I, I loved it. And you, you see this as the ultimate competitor and, and Rafa is the same way. He loves competition he wants to come back and play again and murray is the ultimate competitor you know he's got that i don't know if it's a metal hip or whatever and he's out there playing and fighting so you have to respect that you know you have to respect that as a fan um their competitiveness and the willingness to uh, go out there even when the results are poor so in rafa's case um i'm hoping that 
the body will heal up. I don't think the results will be poor. I think he's going to, if he stays healthy, I think he's going to be uh, difficult to deal with, especially on, on the clay courts. Yeah, I also hope that he gets a nice farewell. I, I mean, like, I, I think the Roland Garros would probably be the most fitting, like a win there and then like a, a time. And I think what, what happens is, I also believe like you, sh the players should play as much, as long as they want. Like, we, 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 who are we to say like, hey, you should retire, you should retire. Okay, exactly. they take wild cards here and there. I, I understand from some players that it's like it feels like you know um, that they take some spots or whatever. But they also brought a lot of fans to the game and a lot of love to the game. Of course, so they deserve the respect, you know. And I, I feel like it's it's silly when they people start like telling people to retire, whether it's Murray or Rafa or or Federer or whatever. Um, well, that's not that, even the, the. I'm sorry, but the, to cut you off, but that's not even the worst example. There are a lot more worse examples. Um, for example, Vlander, your countryman. I don't know if you remember, like Vlander was. Absolute legend of the game, right? Yeah. And then he was out for a while and he decided to come back and he was playing, but he was ranked like around 100. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. For a couple of years. And that wasn't even that bad. Well, what about Borg when he came back and played with wooden rackets when everybody was already using graphite? And he played a whole year like that. What about Muster when he came back and started playing Challengers? So I, I remember like, Muster team in Vienna. I watched that. I, I think yeah. it's like, yeah, you would be like, okay, this guy... He strings his rackets 40 kilos. You know, Muster always used to string and yes. and he comes in, he's 40 years old, Dominic team, and he yeah, he gets it wasn't demolished maybe, but he lost pretty bad, I think I remember. What so. racket was Muster using? That's what I want to know. It was, was a head pro tour uh six thirty, the the P seven eight. Prestige? Yeah, prestige? The, the same Murray, like the same racket as Murray uses and Gilles. That's, what, that's what Muster was playing with? Yeah, yeah. But but heavy and uh, high tension, very high tension. But again, like you said, who are we to tell Muster don't do that, you know? Um, I respect their competitiveness, but you know, um, it's more for their own, like uh, their own legacy. Like I understand, like yes, could, the way Sampras ended was perfect, but you cannot, you know, you cannot order that. You cannot just like pay for that. You have you to be lucky that you're injury free, that you get the draw, that you get the chance. I mean, Ivanisevic, he had three Wimbledon finals. Who knows if he should have like Indian was why like. Uh, qualified a wild card wins the fourth historical moment amazing scenes cries and and you know his father in this time amazing story could easily have been like he lost first round could easily have been right so you, right. you don't know it's that they try and they believe they can do it that's the beautiful part and then hopefully it turns out nice but who knows you know sports is tough right so was well, he even if an issue is part he really wanted to come back the next year and be the opening match in center court so that was for him the primary reason to keep going for another year. And then he retired after that, you know? Yeah. Um, but even if you look at Federer, like his last year was also kind of sad, you know? Yeah, it was sad. Well, I, I didn't like that. Like, I wish he would have won the 2019 final. and yeah, he should have uh, won like, that one. Yeah, that, that felt like a bit of a robbery. And then, then after that, it was all pretty sad. Like, we had COVID and then tennis just lost a little bit of, of luster after that. He came back, yes. bit, you know? And it was just, he was, you know, he was a step slower. Um, of course, yeah, yeah. I saw that when he played uh, Andrew Hart in, 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 um, in Geneva on clay. Yeah. And it was, like, it was maybe, maybe one of the worst matches I've ever seen Federer play. And it was like that last year. Um, and it was just a matter of time until he was going to be gone, you know? <clears throat> so, but, but getting the Sampras trajectory, what I like with, with Rafa, when you saw Rafa now, is like, okay, Rust, obviously, there's yep. no chance it's not going to be Rust. 
right. but the the vamos was still there. The like the effort, mm-hmm. the intensity, everything was there. It's just about like injury or no injury. Because if he's on his level where he's intense enough, obviously he can win the the French Open. He might not win the U.S. Open, but the French Open, he 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 has a good chance of winning it. You know, with this kind of tennis. I agree, one hundred percent. He definitely has a chance, no doubt about it. No so doubt about be... it. And uh, the Olympics is also going to be played on clay or no? I don't know that. See, I'm not clear on that. Um, yeah. I think it's going to be played Paris, at Roland but... Garros, the Olympics. Yeah. That's what I thought. It's going to be played at Roland Garros, the Olympics. Yeah, so he can win two, two clay titles to finish. <laughs> That's why I said finish his career at the Olympics at Roland Garros. Yeah. But winning another gold. Like, yeah, I cool. couldn't think of a better scenario. That'll be a good but knowing idea. Rafa, like, I think if, if he's... Because here's the thing that a lot of people don't know. In 2022, Rafa was in a tremendous amount of pain when he won the French Open. Uh, Carlos Moya said that he's never seen anything like it in, the, in, in his whole I life w- watching tennis because Rafa was really injured. Um, and he can play through a tremendous amount of pain, Rafa. And we watched his match against Taylor Fritz at Wimbledon in the quarters where his family was begging him to stop from the stands yeah. and Rafa just kept going and uh, winning that match. So he can play through a tremendous amount of pain. So I feel like if he's, he can win the French with pain, right? But I feel like if Rafa is feeling healthy and doesn't have pain, I think he's going to keep going. He's going to, he's not going to stop this year. He's going to add another year to it. Yep. I think, I think so the too. only reason, the only reason for Rafa to retire, if his body is at the level where like, it's just, it's just too much, you know? Yeah. It's just too if hurt, it, too injured, and that's when you want to call it quits. If it turns out into like the Federer thing, where Federer couldn't compete, right? He couldn't right. sneeze or too bad. Like then, then there's no point. You know why do you exactly, continue? exactly? Yeah, I, I, it's because I know that keeps going, and he, I mean, he has a wrist problem now for the Australian Open a little bit, but it's, we know he's also won Grand Slams with pain. So these guys, they can he go has. through pretty much anything, right? Go for through sure. a brick wall, you know, to win oh, yeah. Grand Slams. Pretty impressive. Yep. Um, so who do you think, like Australian Open? Do you have any predictions? I think uh, it's going to be Djokovic, simply based on his momentum that he's carrying from last season. I feel like that's where it's really difficult to beat Djokovic because he always finishes the year really strong by winning the World Tour Finals, by winning Paris, even Shanghai back when they, you know, before they took the tournament away for a while. Um, and then he carries that over into the new season and he does really well. Then he continues to do well. Sometimes he blasts through Indian Wells in Miami, and then on clay, sometimes there's some sketchy results, right? So, um, and then he picks his confidence back up for Wimbledon usually. So I feel like this part of the season and the calendar, it's very difficult to beat Djokovic. And I still think that if he plays the way he played in uh, the World Tour Finals, which was unbelievable, I think he's the favorite to win. On the women's side, the big four are Sriantek, uh, Ribakina, Sabalenka, and Coco Goff. And I think the two players that are playing the best right now are Sriantek and Ribakina. So it's going to be like a toss-up between those two. But just based on that first tournament win from Ribakina, where she blasted through, through the draw and, and beat Sabalenka 0-3, I feel like she... I'm going to pick her. So I'm picking Djokovic and Rybakina to win the titles. Pretty good picks, I would say. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, the, you I, can't I, really, you can't, you know, like you can't really go with any outsiders. It's just really tough. You know, I think uh, if you want to like talk about a dark horse, I feel like 
Zverev, maybe. Uh, he's going to take a lot of motivation and confidence from that United Cup win. He could do well, but it also depends a little bit on his draw. And on the women's side, like it's so wide open. There are so many players that can go deep and make a surprise run. The WTA is so competitive right now. There's so many great players. So it's really impossible to make a prediction. There's always somebody that 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 goes through that you didn't think was going to go through, you know. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm Shviontek on the women's side because I think like what I saw her play in the United Cup was just like you know. I mean, also Rybakina is one like super impressive player, right? Like, and yeah. you can never count out Sabalenka, but those are the three for me. I think Goff maybe this one not quite, but she will have a good year overall. <laughs> Um, but, she played but, well, though. Remember, she won the US Open. She won the first tournament of the year. She's yeah, she really won the, yeah, exactly. She won the first. Yeah, I forgot about that. She won the first. I think she got she got blown away from uh, I think from Iga at the WTA finals. But remember, it was super windy. Yeah, yeah. No, and that so tournament was the Shriantek, yeah. Shriantek yeah. was uh, was a was a, the the best wind player by far. Nobody plays in the wind uh, like her because she has probably more spin than the other ones and she moves better than anybody. So she's like the female combo of Djokovic and Rafa. Um, mm. uh, so, so she's going to perform really well in the win, but I do think that Coco um, is in the mix, even though yeah, a lot of people, yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. Actually. Yeah. A lot of people are negative about her for no reason whatsoever. Like it's Why? so much. I thought like, she was pretty hyped up now after the winning the US Open. No. I must be on a different part of the internet than you. Yeah, you, because... should, you should avoid this part of the internet. It sounds like very negative. That part. Where are you at? This is like all positive. But like for a while prior to um, the summer swing, like she was getting a tremendous amount of hate um, on her forehand. And, yeah, I, um, that one, I, I did see that. Like it was okay, when Gilbert okay. came in. Like I did see the forehand stuff. Everybody's an expert. And well, I mean, obviously she had a... I talked to Rick Macy about that because he had offered that's to right. help her. You that's know, right. That's right. And she had a kink on her forehand that needed to be kind of kinked out, I guess. Right, right. Like well, it turns out that Gilbert didn't do any anything that he kinked out. He just stopped talking about the forehand, stopped obsessing on it. And that was good enough to uh, for her to stop obsessing on it too. Like very yeah. similar to Felipe in my 10-day tennis transformation where he was obsessing on his technique where he didn't need to. Um, there was only a couple of small things that I needed to adjust. And so with Coco, um, I always saw that in the singles, she would get a little tight against certain opponents at certain score lines. And in doubles, she would play completely free because she's one of the great, best doubles players in the world. I think at one point she was ranked number one in the world in doubles. I don't know if she still is. I don't think so. But um, in doubles, she would rip the forehands and hit it freely. And then in singles, she would be a little tight. You know, So that to me is a clear indicator it's a mental issue. Another technical one. And uh, I regard Brad Gilbert as one of the greatest coaches of all time at that level as a tour coach. And um, but from what I read, he just completely stopped obsessing on the forehand and her work because she regained confidence and blasted through that summer uh, series of tournaments, uh, won everything, including the U.S. Open, and then did play pretty well um, at the WTA Finals. But at the wind was absolutely no chance against Iga. So... When I read now, um, you know, some of the commentary on her, I do feel like, you know, the, the, see, the thing with Coco is that people want to compare her to Serena really bad and they want her to be the next Serena and she's just simply not that. She's, don't think at that same level, okay, to be the greatest of all time. But I do think Coco, I saw her in person playing many times. She's an unbelievable player capable of being 
number one in the world in singles and doubles, which is absolutely amazing. But do I think that she can win like 24 slams like Serena? Uh, probably not. Um, but people want her for some reason to be the next Serena. And I think that's a way to put in a lot of expectations and there's a lot of trolling and stuff like that. And then on top of all that, you know, this is what I do for a living, tennis technique. They're not understanding her forehand. You know, they're not understanding her forehand technique. And I think that she has a horrible forehand, which she doesn't. It was really a confidence thing. So, like I said, I put her in the mix um, to do big things this year, including the Australian Open. She she does have a chance to go deep and maybe even win. Um, so let's see what happens. Yeah, no, it's good. And the women's uh, draw is always kind of more interesting on just on paper, at least. Like, it looks like... Because with Djokovic, you always have that, especially the way he finished. Like, he's he's so good uh, in these circumstances that it's you can't, like, count out that he's just going to blow through the field like it, it's it's there's a risk of that i would would be fun to see like sinner for example he's my dark horse kind of i think he finished really strongly and uh, he can do some good stuff this year but can you call him a dark horse though like he's like no, a no, he's favorite. more of an open no no he's more of a favorite right yeah yeah, yeah. who's I, your dark say... horse like a lower rank guy would you, would you be your dark horse somebody that's not expected to win like can you pick somebody that you think can do well I mean, Zverev is probably too high rank. He's a top ten player, I guess. I even okay. I mean, I, All right, I, I get, I get it, I get it. I agree, though, that he, the way he played at the United Cup, the mental thing he showed there was yeah. quite impressive, right? And he, it was. he came back. He, he won the trophy from Poland. Was just like all over it. Like Hercatch had match points. Yep. Like the way oh, he yeah. played the last two matches there was pretty, pretty solid, right? Like that's now, very impressive. Yeah. If you remember when he got hurt, when he rolled his ankle in the French he Open, so like, good. Yeah. he could have beaten Rafa. He played. He was playing top three tennis in the yeah. world. He was top three, in my opinion. He was playing yeah, unbelievable. I agree. I saw that match and I was like blown away by how good he was. Like I was like, I've never seen him play like this. this and crazy. then when he came back, his level obviously wasn't the same. You know, I was actually very surprised when he came back that he didn't immediately jump jump to like top five. He didn't, mm -hmm. and I was surprised because I thought that's what he would do. But it, I think that he does belong up there. I think he does belong in the top five. I think yeah, like, yeah. No, I now put him, you see him play yeah. like that. Yeah. So um, I think when you talk about like true dark horses that nobody's thinking about, players that I'm impressed with, um, it's Hamad uh, Medjedovic. Very good player. He's a Serbian guy. And I watched him last year at a tournament. I think it was in Sofia. Man, I was like, wow. I've never seen anything like it, man. Like he was ripping the ball so hard. Now, I know everybody hits hard. Don't get me wrong. All these guys that you see, they're hitting hard. All the WTA uh, players are hitting hard. But something about him, like, it just, he's got a fast arm. He's got a humongous serve. That guy impressed me a lot. And he's kind of a different build. He's not your typical, like, six-pack uh, abs type of guy. He's a, like, it reminds me a little bit of Becker, you know? Like, I don't know. Something about him is interesting. So I like him. There's another guy who like is intriguing to me as as Shevchenko. You know him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen him a bit. A huge, beautiful serve, huge game, very modern technique. Like you know, forehand, backhand, a great mover. So I think he he's got chances to do well. Um, Safi Ulin, who you know personally, I think. Yeah. That guy is mm -hmm. such a beast. Wow. Yeah, he's good. No, he's good. He's good. He's so solid. Did you see him take out Alcaraz in Paris? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. So that guy can 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 go deep. Um, then of course, like you got uh, the the really young guys like Van Asher and then one uh, the the Arthur Fields, 
Like, Fields, I, I'm more impressed by them. I'm not just good, but but I think Fields has the power and the modern game, and also he, he has already won a title. You know, he's yeah, he's, he's one of the guys that I I Banache is like a Banache is like a Goffin type, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Which I do I'm, think there's a there's still a time and a place for guys like that. I do think so. Like those type of guys can still do some damage. So those are the young guys. Like I do think that um, it's going to be tough for them, you know, to go deep, but. But those are, if you ask me like a true dark horse, somebody that nobody's thinking about, there would be like those four or five guys. Yep, I agree, I agree with that. I mean, Ben Shelton is quite interesting. I mean, pretty hyped up in the States. Well, I mean, the reason why I'm mentioning, not mentioning him because like he's already part of the part of the mix, right? Like he's already won the title and people are thinking of him. I'm like, because you said like, you know, talk about a true dark horse, somebody that yeah, nobody yeah. knows, like, you got to pick guys that that are a little bit more under the radar. So, but yeah, he's yeah, I agree. Uh, he's he's and that serve. I mean, I did a video on his serve. It's something from a technical standpoint that I've rarely seen. Um, it, it is a incredible serve. It's unbelievably powerful. Uh, very difficult to return. On top of all that, he's lefty, so he's you know with that serve, he's going to be a a nightmare to play against. Uh, for many years to come and he's capable of doing big things you know yeah agree no he's a guy that's interesting to watch as well he he apparently changed a little bit of his forehand he tried to make it make it shorter as i saw some some video i mean I, and it looks different you know uh, is there to... ever gonna be a time when somebody makes their forehand longer you know that's that's what i want to see i want to see that one guy who like goes against the grain I'm like well, let's make the forehand a little bit longer let's make the forehand like labrinko or djokovic yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see what happens. No, it's always yeah, no, it's a good yeah. point. Like, I mean, the way Djokovic plays <laughs> with his swings, and I guess like everybody's thinking, how can I gain time? It's all about gaining time in this crazy pace they play with, yeah. right? I guess it gets a little more complex than that. But the, you know, the time that you gain is actually it's not it's it's insignificant. That's why you see somebody like a Bonjusova, and you got to understand that the women's ground strokes are very similar in speed to the men's ground strokes. And, and she won Wimbledon with a typical WTA backswing. Mm. Now you have Coco Golf with a typical WTA backswing, won the US Open. So um, timing is really not influenced by that. I will say that it's definitely a, a, a less likely that you're going to have success on the ATP where, uh, you know, there, there's also the factor of spin that also changes the equation. So, you have seen in the 2000s players with a little bit larger backswings, WTA style, but it's going to be a different backswing. I think that's why it's such a huge topic because coaches see this in the last 20 years since, you know, I don't know how long YouTube's been around, but you've seen this countless times where people show you a typical WTA forehand and an ATP forehand and, and they see, okay, the ATP forehand is shorter and the take back and they think this is the way to do it. But it gets a lot more complex than that, and there's actually a lot more different types of forehands on the on the ATP than people uh, tend to believe. And I always say, like, listen, um, you want to talk about great forehands? Why is Djokovic never considered? Like, I put him very high. I put him at number three in my top five forehand videos, um, and it's one of the cleanest forehand techniques that you will see. And it's got a longer backswing. Okay. It goes right behind, like it doesn't go WTA style, but it goes pretty far back, mm. and he's just fine. Like you know, so I feel like there's a little bit of an obsession on. You talk about you know Shelton doing that. There's a little bit of an obsession on this in the last 
ever since YouTube came out and people started posting slow-mo from, uh, from tournaments, ever since people saw these differences, because here's the thing, though, and this is why I say YouTube, because when you look at a forehand in real time, you don't see the length of the backswing because that part of the swing is continuous and it's already fast. So a WTA forehand looks phenomenal. Like, you know, you look at like uh, uh, um, Simona Halep's forehand or, 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 or Sirolina's forehand or Sharapova or Azarenka or, or whoever, and you look at it in real time, it looks beautiful, right? Sloan Stevens, Madison Keys, it looks beautiful in real time. But then when you slow it down, you start breaking it up in different parts. Now it starts looking ugly. And you see this at contact, they're like this, Iga, mm. you know? So Iga's forehand in real time, it looks beautiful, and slow motion looks ugly. So ever since people started looking at this on YouTube, coaching has drastically changed because this wasn't an area of discussion so much prior to uh, the internet. And now there's an obsession with an incredibly short take back on the forehand. And in my opinion, this can work. Of course, it can work. No doubt about it. But it can also, depending on some circumstantial things, uh, it can cause problems as well if you force something that does not, doesn't suit you. Yeah, and the technique is also a part of your whole footwork and your whole personality and your, the way you play. So it's like it's not an easy thing. You just put, press a button and now it's shorter. You know, it's like it's a whole timing, everything, timing the whole chain. You know, so it's, it's not that true. Easy. It's it's just more very complex, actually. Yeah. 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 So of, I think I I think you raise a good point. I think that, that YouTube and the presence of all these video, hours and hours of video analysis from billions and billions of coaches and people, and it's like it also can get into players' heads. It can get into coaches' heads. It can be like they, they start obsessing over details that in, in a match situation, like who cares how it looks? It's all about what results. Like you're winning your matches. You know, it's not really like how it's... It's the same way like you talked about yes. Coco Golf, which was interesting is that... <clears throat> Brad Gilbert, he was not known for having good technique or style or anything special, but he yeah. got to four in the world. Like he's just it was a very very successful match player, right? And yeah. mentally very strong, smart, played his his tennis the way he he could maximize his potential. Yeah. And to just say, okay, stop worrying about it, I think is is that's a that's a smart move. Like that's a, that's a, the way to when everybody's worrying, she also seems very sensitive, Coco Goff, because she, I mean. I, I've also seen that she gets a lot of shit on, on the internet in the, her case. And she has to post sometimes, oh, you know, all you haters out there. She has to kind of address the haters, which is sad to see because she's winning Grand Slams. You know, why should she right. have to address haters? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a stupid situation. But um, and I, I think it was for him. I, I was really impressed by his move of being like, OK, let's not dive too much into this. Let's focus on you just like playing and winning and doing your thing. And it was uh, I think that was the way to go, actually. Not, not obsessing over these things. It's true. It's that. true. Um, simple logic would tell you that if somebody is in the top 10, they probably have good technique, you know? <laughs> if, they're in the top, yeah. if they're in the top 1,000, they probably have good technique, okay? Uh, yeah. That simple logic would tell you that. So technical things are probably very minor or they would never have any chance to make it there, you know? So um, it's a little bit different to serve, I will say, because it's a whole nother story for another day. But when we're talking about forehand and backhand, uh, those have to be pretty good if you want to make it to that level. So um, what people often get confused with is style over fundamentals. And it's something that I cover in great depth on my on my website. Um, I have a course that goes in, in depth on every single stroke what the differences are in style and fundamentals. Now, unfortunately, coaching in the last 20 years, um, 
from what I've seen here in the junior tennis mecca of the world, which is Southeast Florida, is an obsession with style. Regardless of the age and the gender of the player, it's an obsession on style. And the person that's responsible for this the most, who I fault the most for this, is Roger Federer. You know, obviously not not him, not not he didn't do anything, but everybody is in love with Federer that's teaching tennis. 99% of coaches in love with Federer, especially if they're a little bit older. They're stands of Federer. You know what I mean by stand? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, like, they um, they obviously want to teach that style, and that's how it all started on the serve also, by the way. And, you know, that's just something that uh, is complete style because what I've done with a lot of tedious work, and I have – what I teach is fundamentals over style. So that is actually in itself a beautiful way because now when you allow a player to develop their own style, you're going to see players with different styles, how it used to be. You mentioned Brad Gilbert, but there were so many different styles back in the day. You had, you know, uh, some quirky techniques too, like, um, you know, Carsten Brash. Remember him? Yeah. With the, there were some quirky techniques out there. There was, uh, you know, uh, Edberg had a weird forehand, but, you yeah, know, it, it was, was, it was more effective, but it worked, you know. It was more freedom then. It was more style. Um, now, uh, unfortunately, the trend is is just is just a lot of similar looking strokes and just blasting from the baseline. So, when you allow style to take care of itself, um, in my opinion, you get a more beautiful game. Now, of course, you have to teach the fundamentals, or you're not going to have a chance to get better at tennis. So that's there's no doubt about that. And now the question is like, what's style, what's fundamentals? That's where it gets a little bit tricky. But I do my best to try to um, you know, put videos out there where I show the differences and, and what I think is important. And when we're talking about uh, the length of the swing, while there are some like similarities on the ATP, it is a cornerstone of the intuitive tennis methodology that that part of the stroke is developed intuitively and, and not messed with so much. Now, I think that's, when somebody that's when true. somebody has issues, like when somebody has problems, now we can maybe look into doing some changes, but generally there, there I don't look like when, see when you are take, when you're playing tennis and the racket goes behind you, you can't see the racket. There's a lot of people don't realize that. Like you're looking forward at the ball and you don't know what the racket is doing back there. So ultimately it helps by feel, you know, when you, when you don't put a lot of thought on that process, um, it's likely going to be something that's, that your body figures out on its own. And it's likely going to be the same every time. By you focusing on it and, and try to do something, number one, it's going to be very difficult to do because you don't exactly know where the racket is. So ultimately, you're forced to break down your swing and lose all the continuity and the flow of it. And you just create big problems for yourself. And I think you mentioned Coco being very sensitive. I've seen actually, <laughs> this is crazy, but on Facebook, this person will remain unnamed, but there's somebody that like secretly recorded Coco training and they were showing what they were doing on the forehand and if I told you like the, the comments is just in, in insanity so like it was the obsession with her forehand was solely solely on really things that make no difference which is, was her grip which is more extreme and the length of her take back both things that I would leave alone and not mess with why would I do that because there's evidence to show that there's nothing wrong with those things. Like I said, she was ripping the ball in doubles and number one in the world in doubles. And uh, just the sheer fact that she's ranked so high and winning matches and then it's a purely mental thing. So, 
you know, it's a, it's a long story short, um, technique can get quite complex. And I think there has been a huge influence in the way tennis is coached because of the internet. I do think there's a huge connection with that and Roger Federer. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking also, it's funny because like, I was also see that like if you're on the club level, you're watching matches. I go to the ITF tournaments for seniors and yeah. stuff and people try to look so good when playing, but the results don't naturally come, you know, and, and you have guys like, I mean, if you go look at the pros, you have Medvedev looks technically quite ugly and obviously all sound, but yeah, it's, it's a joy for me personally to watch his style and, and as a guy like Santoro or a guy like who it doesn't look so beautiful, but it, it works. And that's beauty in that, you know, like I the, the difference in the, the style is a beauty. Obviously yeah. Federer was kind of the most clean looking Jordan of the, of the game in many ways. For sure. But, for but sure. For rec players to imitate uh, also the toughest because the amount of, of physicality and, and like athleticism you need to play that type of game is, is not really yeah. easily replicated either, right? So it's, it's just not the right approach, I think. Yeah, it's true. I agree with you for sure. But then, yeah, he didn't have like, um, like the modern forehand is not what you think of with Roger Federer. Like, I mean, he has a modern forehand in many ways, but it's not like you don't, if you see the young guys today, if you talk about Medvedevic, you talk about uh, Shevchenko, the way they yeah. hit the forehand now on these guys, like Arthur Fields, it's very different from how Federer hit his forehand. You know, like technically well, sound both, but, but very different. <laughs> First of all, the way you hold your racket is, is a huge factor on a forehand. And it affects many different things on the forehand. The angle of your wrist at the moment of contact, it affects a lot of things. And Roger Federer had a very classic grip with the Eastern forehand grip. So I agree that in that sense, it was more of a classic forehand, but apart from the grip, it had all the components of a modern forehand and very similar to the way the players hit it today, but the grip is classic. And and so that has to be considered. And that's something that often people were not talking about at all. And they just try to copy the Federer forehand without even thinking about uh, the grip. Not that you should change the grip just because Federer... Um, was using it and nor is there anything wrong with an Eastern grip if it does come natural to a player. But see, it, Jonas, like tennis technique can get so complex. You can get so into the weeds with this. When you start looking at like the modern guys, the next-gen guys, I don't even know if they're still called next-gen, but let's call them the, the, the Akaraz, Sinner, and so on. And you start looking at angles of that racket. When the racket goes back, it gets so com confusing. It gets so complicated. But one thing you got to understand that this, this is something that both of them, I'm sure, they don't spend one second thinking about. It's people that are watching them in slow motion think about. They don't think about that. Like I said, you're looking forward at the ball. You just go by feel back there. And because you're going by feel, it's developed naturally. And it's the same every time. And you're looking at the player on your phone or your computer from behind and you're studying angles. Okay, the racket is here, it's there. And then you try to copy this. Well, how are you going to copy it? You got to break your stroke down and you lose all the continuity, all the, the flow of it. And you're causing a lot of problems because of it. Yeah, 100%. I think that's very good, uh, good uh, advice as well. Not to yeah. overthink that stuff, you know? No, no, no. It's very easily happens. So for your end, like Intuitive Tennis 2024, do you have any New Year's resolutions? Do you have any big plans for this year? Are you going on any tennis trips or what, what's in the store for you? So in 2024, I definitely have plans to do something big. I really don't want to announce it because I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to pull it off, but I have 
planned a series of videos that could be quite fun. But in addition to that, I plan to do a lot more tennis equipment videos because that's something that I really enjoy. And that's the connection that you and I have where I'm a tennis nerd too. So I love tennis equipment, uh, but not just rackets, also like uh, shoes um, and ball machines and stuff like that, like just tennis equipment in general. Um, so there's going to be a lot, a lot of videos on that coming this year. Um, a few days ago, I played with Shamir for the first time in probably six months. Um, he's a player that's very popular on my channel. Um, and he was out for a while with a chronic foot injury, but he was able to find these insoles from um, this one uh, doctor. And mm -hmm. he's feeling a lot better. Um, and so we played and he's playing better and he doesn't have as much pain. So he's going to be featured a lot more in 2024. I'm going to try to feature a, a ton of match play. And I hope that I can pull off the thing that I'm planning, but I, I just don't want to announce it. But in any case, I'm going to try to like just continue to do my best and, and, and make the best videos possible, the most valuable videos possible and share my, my passion for the game and my passion as a coach. Um, that's why I'm just, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep plugging away. That's great. I think people look forward to that. I think also you have a pretty, I mean, coaching is your heart and soul, but I yeah. think all of us tennis YouTubers are also liking to talk tennis about whether it's, it's like match play, it's gear, it's player profile, it's history, depending on your, your stance. So it's, it's fun to cover. Yeah more things tennis because if you're just talking coaching just talking gear it can get a little bit repetitive you know so it's fun to also cover some other topics sometimes in tennis i think I'll just a lot of these topics naturally overlap a little bit yeah. you know like it's just all connected to each other and i think all of it is important and um just to keep your channel interesting and entertaining and also for yourself to keep you know and I not get bored with the whole process. If you keep making the same videos about how to hit for, how to hit a uh, slice backhand, it's gonna get boring after a while, right? And people are gonna get turned off. So I feel like you have to be versatile. Um, so see, there's a lot of there's a lot of niches within the tennis niche, right? So, and I don't know if it's if you say niche or niche. I always say niche. Could be wrong. Yeah, I don't same, know. Same. Yeah, but like, like there is the match niche, right? Winston do. This guy deserves a shout out. Are you going to have him on the channel? Did you talk to him? I should. I should. Yeah, I've, I've, I haven't talked to him. Yeah, well, I have. He reached out uh, on, on a comment. So I, I think I said okay. I wrote something in the comments. But I don't really like sometimes it's not that easy to get a hold of people if, if they're not, it's if not. Only on YouTube, you know? Yeah. Of course. So he's a guy that's uh, from Rockford, Illinois, um, um, as in California, obviously. But I used to, I used to live there and teach tennis there. So we have this connection and I talk to him all the time. And uh, what he's doing for the tennis community is so huge because he's getting a lot of people to tune in and watch these matches and, and it creates an interest for the game and it's just fantastic. And he's, he's doing so well. I mean, he puts all these interesting matchups on his channel and that's great. Then you have like tennis Felix from tennis brothers. You go into his comments and you see like all the time, young players that are inspired to go out there and train. It's awesome. I see it all the time. Like, oh, Felix, I love your videos. I, I want to, uh, you're inspiring me to go out there and train and, and play in college. So this content that we're making can be very inspiring um, regardless of the niche, you know, whether you're doing tennis equipment, 
or whether you're doing technical videos or showing matches, if we can get people to get some inspiration to go out there and hit the courts, hey, that's, I think, what it's all about. Yeah, I think that's the, the main goal that you should strive for is to kind of bring, yes. whether it's information or entertainment or hopefully a bit of both. I think that's yes. that's it. Then do it in your own style and voice, and that's the that's what you can bring, really. Like then, then it doesn't really matter what what niche you're in, uh, as long as you can bring that. You know, try to keep that your guiding star. I would say. Absolutely, no doubt about it. Cool. No, it sounds great. I hope to meet you in person, maybe this year. We'll see if I get over to the states. Well, I'm fun. going to Europe too in the summer. I usually go to Europe in the summer, so then we'll meet we up. Have, sure. We have to do an in-person interview. Yes. Maybe we'll maybe we'll play a we'll play a, a set for the channel, yeah. for your channel, and you beat up on me. That will not happen. You give me yeah. a good you give me a good beating with your pro connects. Yes. If I give you a, a <laughs> maybe some complete shit racket before me with no strings, I can maybe do it. <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, I've seen you play. You're good. You're a good player. It's, it's getting better slowly, slowly. But like all the racket stuff is is also uh, sometimes damaging me quite beyond. So like so, sometimes I'm so frustrated. Yeah. Just people don't realize that. Like I said, because I also want to improve. But uh, sometimes you bring like when you when you're testing stuff, and I also really want to give my audience like an unbiased, honest opinion, uh, where I really give it a good go. I don't want to try it five minutes and then throw it away. Or I try of different course. string setups. I try. I try to really understand the racket. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it takes time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you're like, oh my god, I need to get back to my own tennis. That's why, like yesterday, when I played with Daniel for without any testing involved, yeah. I was like, oh, you know, I was playing the best I've done in a while, so it was nice, right? Know, feeling, feeling a bit back back in business, you know. But then, then we'll see. But what is your what is your best shot and worst shot? Like I've heard you say sometimes you you have you don't really like your backhand that much. Is yeah, that my true? backhand is a constant work in progress. My slice is pretty decent. I would say that's, uh, I think Daniel would agree with that, but that's, yeah, my, my, my forehand I'm ha pretty happy with overall. Yeah. Like I, I you know, I, I can serve decently for my height, uh, and, and but yes. the backhand is usually what lets me down. So that's where I would need some coaching, especially. I mean, need coaching with everything, but, but backhand. Well, I don't know if you know this, but that for a while, um, this is not so true now anymore because tennis technique has become so uniform, but, and then... <laughs> 80s, 90s, maybe even in the early 2000s, all the Swedish tennis players had weird forehands. This is I'm not yeah, talking yeah. about Borg. I'm not talking about Borg. I'm talking about after Borg. Gustafsson, Larsson, those guys. Absolutely, I think. Gustafsson, yeah, I Larsson, Edberg, Söderlund. There's forehand. a lot of weird forehands, long back swings, ugly looking. You know what I mean? A bit like Gulbis so style, like almost. You know, some of them have like a worse. Bit old, you know, in, in a lot of ways worse because Gulbis look kind of weird. Um, in the back, but look really clean in the front where yeah. these forehands look kind of weird the whole way through. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of a weird thing um, from the Swedish players, but I'm glad that you're not part of that group because your forehand looks nice. Yeah, my forehand is, is, is okay. Yes. I, I, and then it's just I have to get the Edberg inspiration on the backhand because he had a very good one <laughs> in the back. But, but I just want to mention this though, like it doesn't mean that those forehands were bad necessarily. Like no, Sedling no. had an absolute killer forehand. That forehand was absolute monster, right? So it looked a little weird, you know. It looked somewhat flat to me, but it was a. Despite the way it looked, it was a great forehand. And you know, even Edberg. I don't know if you watch old matches, but on Tennis Channel they have uh, a whole section where you can watch old matches. And I just recently watched Edberg Chang French Open final. That's a classic. And, yeah, 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 I've seen that one. And, I saw that and, live. I know, not live, it, live. I watched on TV when I was a kid. I realized that Edberg was so close to winning the French Open, which yeah, would have yeah. been unbelievable. But I, I was a little bit heartbroken. I was a huge fan. I think this was 89, yeah. right? Right. 89. 
Yeah, yeah. I was like seven years old. So I, I remember that. I was like, I was a big tennis nerd already. But, like I was at uh, that yeah, age. Quite into it, you know? How old were you then in 89? Seven. And you already were a huge Edberg fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think let's say eighty two one four. Yeah, so that's that's okay. seven. Yeah. So and I remember like being a little bit upset that he didn't win. You know, I remember that. Well, I can tell you this that after looking at this match, I realize now that his forehand wasn't as bad as people make it out to be. No, no, no. It, it, wasn't. it wasn't like a you know, Agassi forehand or a Becker forehand, but it wasn't that bad of a forehand. And simple logic, we were talking about Coco would tell you that you can't have the career that Edberg's had with a amateur forehand. But if you read forums online, you people make it make it out like Edberg had like a wreck level forehand, which is <laughs> it's not even it's ridiculous. I mean, he, he did coach Roger for a few years and they yeah. they hit. Like, so do you think you can hit with Roger and give him a ball without the forehand? No, no chance, man. Like, no, no, absolutely chance. not. Now, you talked about Gilbert today and his style. Yeah. People always talk about how bad Gilbert was. Like, if you want to go on YouTube and watch highlights from Gilbert against Becker, I think it was at Cincinnati. Gilbert was unreal. The, it was such an unbelievable player. Great, great strokes. Yeah, a little bit unorthodox. It's a little different. The way we walked and ran on the court was a little different, like, but the strokes weren't necessarily as beautiful as some other players, but he was an unbelievable player. So, yeah, I just wanted to say that, like, you know, it's a perception, general perception, but the reality is sometimes different. And uh, especially when we're talking about Edberg, who I love, um, the I think there's wasn't a... as bad. No, no. And I think there's a little bit of a, a trend um or trend i don't know it's the today's society it's like people want to diss things from the past online like they keyboard warriors oh or never God. hit a forehand you know they want to like i mean even you had this curious becker thing like we're curious kind of disrespecting uh becker's uh, accomplishments and i mean i, yes. I like curious like i like his game uh, he's a he's a bit of a off his head sometimes but you know he seems like a nice guy genuinely we went outside the court uh, when i when i met him briefly you know but you can't go and say this the greats of the game. Like this is not really on. You know, I don't think that's fair, right? That's it's not okay. Jonas, you hit on the nail on the head. This is unbelievable the way you transition to this because this is one hundred percent something that is happening with the young generation. When I grew up, it was always like respect your elders. Yeah, you know, respect, especially when we talk about tennis. You always respect older players. For one, they can probably still kick your butt because when I went to college, I was a young guy and my coach, Mel Purcell, who was on tour, quarterfinals in Wimbledon, uh, 20 in the world, he was already in his mid-40s and he was like, dude, we probably played like, let's just say if we play 100 sets, he probably won 70% of them. Like he was beating me often. And um, I had ultimate respect for the guy. I would not say one bad word about his technique. And it was already a little bit classic than than what you saw then in the early 2000s. It was already, the technique was already somewhat outdated the way he was playing. Um, but I wouldn't in a million years say that this guy, like this guy sucks because I'd respect. But what I see now more than ever before is a general uh, lack of respect towards the older generations on social media. But I'm also seeing it in tennis and i did that's why i was so motivated to make a video about that boris becker and curious exchange because the way curious was talking to becker the way he was communicating with him complete lack of respect 
and um, and I thought it was uncalled for, and that's that's why I made that video. I did not like that the way he was talking to him because back. I I, yeah. I just think it makes like because I, I I'm like I'm not a curious apologist because sometimes he he gets you know he, he loses his mind and it it's I mean, but he seems like an okay guy off the uh, you know off the court and he goes on rants on social media which some people do these days, but then like I think you just look why do you do this like there's no point like you just hurt your own personal brand right by doing this because he lo he lost my respect yeah to be honest like i really felt like okay i sometimes like oh no but i like curious he's a cool guy you know it's like i like his game style he brings people to the game but that even though becker has done the shit with taxes whatever i don't care uh i felt like you don't need to go in this like mind why do you like go and bash him you have no nothing to gain there's zero gain like well first of all what he was saying too was not factual no he was saying that becker was serving if he was lucky there were guys back and then were serving 120 becker was serving 141 now you talk about like shelton has a huge serve at 146 becker was serving 141 with the stuza oh, racket yeah. you want us to remember that racket the stuza i have it oh you do <laughs> yeah, i have a boris becker um <laughs> it's from the head factory it's like uh it's in plastic yeah it's that old you meant the old like puma racket right Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have it. I haven't. I haven't even unwrapped the plastic. I would like to string it up. It's supposed to be right. like a class. It's one of those limited edition. You know, the only five thousand made. Imagine serving one forty-one with that racket. Are you joking yep. me? Imagine Great. serving a one thirty-five like Sampras with the with that. What is it? Eighty-five square inch racket head. Yes. Wilson? Yeah. Wilson Pro Staff. Yep. Dude, like that's like pretty close to impossible. So these guys were beasts. These were. Some of the greatest athletes to ever step foot on a tennis court. Course, and people yeah. always say, like, tennis evolving, athletes are much better. Like, okay, so, again, my favorite player of all time in basketball, Michael Jordan, he he's absolutely considered the GOAT, best of all time. And he played basketball, what, 30 years ago or, yeah, or longer than that, 40 years ago. So, it's, look, it's true that sports evolve, but... The best of the best back in the day, they were pretty spectacular when we're talking about tennis. Edberg, Becker, um, you know, Lendl, McEnroe, Connors. Like these guys were spectacular. And like what Curious did was just, it's something that's unheard of because, you know, if you want to talk about who made tennis, like who got tennis to the point where it's at now, where these guys are making so much money, you know, see, I'm from Croatia, but I moved to Germany because my dad was a tennis coach and he first worked in Austria and then later on in Germany, which was in the mid eighties. And I always thought that that's what, where the tennis boom was, you know, the mid eighties when, when Becker won his first Wimbledon in 85 and then Graf yeah, yeah. came Huge. shortly after. And I thought that was the boom. My dad told me, listen, no, the actual boom in tennis was, was Borg and McEnroe. Those are the guys that exploded tennis. And then came then came the Beckers and the Stichs and the Edbergs. And then yeah. came the Sampras and the Agassi. And then came the Federer, the Murray, Nadal, Djokovic. So, so see, these guys built tennis to this level. And you yeah. have to thank and respect each generation prior for making this happen. Yeah, that's, I, that's I, I just like, I don't understand like this, like, because... Um... I, I don't because I, I think there's a disrespect. I mean, this is also in society in general, but like the world was different, equipment was different, people were different, they ate differently, but still, like, so you, you really should only compare people against other people from that generation. 
Right. And, but but even like looking at surf speeds and stuff, there's no way you can argue that these guys were not um, unbelievable athletes, ex- were. exceptional tennis players. It's, it's just like pointless argument for him. So it's I, so I, stupid. I, yeah. Jonas, it's stupid to compare because we'll never know the answer. How, exactly. How would we, because now when like Kyrgios play against Becker because Becker can't move and he's old, it makes no sense. So you would have to imagine a young Becker against Kyrgios now and that's just impossible. Like... And yeah, and how just, do you do it with the equipment? Like, do you get the same training exactly. equipment, the same food, so, the same see, everything, you know? Really a dumb, it's a really stupid discussion. And I really, that's something I never talk about. I avoid this like the plague. The only time I talked about this was when um, there was somebody that asked me, <laughs> this is hilarious. This is a couple of years back. Um, they asked me whether a 4.0 could beat a Grand Slam champion from the past, like a McEnroe or a Connors. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, this 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 okay, led yeah. this led to the most disastrous disastrous period um, uh, of time on intuitive tennis. This couple of years back, which led to me talking about this, and then this led to like this thing that I tried to do called beat the pro, um, and this just opened up a can of worms that I'm never going to open again. But um, this is the type of thoughts that people have. They, they, they think that if they're four zero, they can beat like uh, you know <laughs> like John McEnroe. Um, so yeah, they can't you know, beat. Like, you can go back to the 1800s, the best player. Then you're not going to beat that guy either. I mean, come on, like this is ridiculous. I stuff. think we talked about this last time I was on, so we don't have to really talk about the like rec level versus pro level. It's something. No, 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 no. It's already it, been it, done, but, that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think this is an interesting discussion, and it's a, it's fascinating. But I I love um, the past, and I enjoy watching old matches just as much as I watch as I love watching the current ones. So yeah, that's just me. Yeah, same. I, I can watch an old match. I can go a, a Fed-Nadal match. I can go a Edberg match. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. I think I don't go back, I mean, only for like research reasons and I want to learn more about the game, but yeah. I tend to go like childhood heroes, like, you know, Edberg's era, you know, because that's when I grew up watching tennis. And and then I guess all these guys, you know, yeah. big heroes for me, but... I could easily also watch like a match from the seventies, you know, if it's like in- interesting tennis. Because I just I watched, like the sport, you know. Yeah, go ahead. I just watched Lendl yes, McEnroe, Ma- Lendl McEnroe French Open final. I just watched that. That Good was match, cool. Uh, fantastic match. What a roller coaster, you know. So I don't know. It's just great. But I, of course, like the more back in time you go, the slower it gets. No doubt about it. You know, there's no doubt about it. So if you if you're in if you have the need for speed. Um, the, the current form of tennis is going to bring you a lot of excitement, but I don't yeah, find I, that. I think there's also something to be said for like, um, there's a point where we might get almost too fast. Like there's also an enjoyment in watching yes. a little bit slower pace, you know, because well, you have more time to understand what they're manipulating the ball yes. and it's just about power, you know, so there's also well, a point. Jonas, if you remember, we talked about style versus fundamentals a while back. That, that's definitely related to that where not only do players technique um, look identical in some cases or very similar, but it's also the way they play. And uh, it's just a power baseline game with very little variety. And even Nadal said it's, a, it's something that's a, it's a shame that you don't see um, more variety. That's why Alcaraz is so great because he does have some more variety. He likes to serve and volley. He likes to drop shot. He, he likes to mix it up a little bit. But um, a lot of other players don't. And uh, if everybody everybody plays like that, I think tennis is going to suffer. I think ultimately um, it's more entertaining to watch different styles um, compete against each other 
I think um, back in the day, watching a true baseliner against a true servant volleyer was something that was so weird. You know, it's like it was so interesting to see how the, let's say they played on clay, right? How is the ba- the servant volleyer going to do against the baseliner on clay? And then vice versa, how is the baseliner going to do on a fast surface against the servant volleyer? Like it just created these interesting scenarios that you simply don't see that much anymore where it's regardless of the surface whether it's grass hardcore or clay it's pretty much the same thing like boom 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 forehand backhand topspin uh ripping running super high athleticism it's just it's pretty much that's what you see now unfortunately yeah. and not and so it, much of the not, variety of play not always the easiest product uh, i wrote my record easiest product to sell because yeah. i think it does look a little bit two-dimensional and you can have like these two amazing athletes like a Russovori versus a, another baseline player who's very, yeah. very good top 50 players. And it gets kind of like the same kind of rally, you know, like you see the same yes. points being played over and over. You go back, uh, Fed Nadal, obviously the one reason they were, you know, extra interesting is that the contrast in style, even Nadal said that recently, like that, that is why that is a special rivalry because sure. they're so different. Even Djokovic Nadal, sometimes you can get bored with 48 shot rallies, you know, it's like, it's too, yes. it's so impressive that it gets boring, you know, and, and going back like Agassi Sampras, Sampras rushing to the net, Agassi finding yes. that like centimeter extra passing shot, you know, that's a great entertainment, you know, how can you not like oh, that? You know, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And I'm, I'm not saying that it's not entertaining now to watch tennis. It is. But um, it, it just looking looking ahead, like I'm very scared to for the tennis, for the future of tennis. I'm very very worried, um, and this is what I ended um, 2023 with, like in a in a rant. And it has to do with just society and social media in general, where attention span is uh, getting smaller and smaller, um, and therefore, like what you see. On social media is shortened formats like under a minute highlights and this is the type of tennis media that people are consuming people are not watching tennis matches on tv anymore as often as they did in the past like the young generation doesn't even watch tv they don't even watch tv at all um of course um, not everyone but like the vast majority of them don't they I don't have their watch phones. <laughs> so i don't, I don't either actually so yeah. um what's going to happen i i'm fearing and what's already been happening is that you see the junior tournaments here now play sets up to four. Uh, super tiebreak is now super common. You see it everywhere, okay? Where they don't play at the third set. Um, best of five disappeared from the Master Series tournaments. I, I'm afraid that maybe they're going to get rid of best of five in Grand Slams. Um, maybe in the early rounds, and they're going to keep it in the, in the later rounds. Um, they're going to have to go with the public that's watching the tennis because the, a lot of the people that are still watching tennis which is a really old audience. If you look at the commercials that are on the tennis channel, you notice some of those commercials. You're not in the United States, but it's like, I know what you I'm mean. I'm not going to say, but it's like, you know, it's one of those commercials where help me. I, I fell and I can't get up type of commercial, you know, for, like it's just for, for old people because they know the audience is older. Right. So when, when this audience, uh, you know, God forbid, it's not there anymore one day. And now the younger audience starts going up there. I think everybody's going to have to go with what, what the, what the viewing habits are. And I think tennis is going to get shortened. And when tennis gets shortened, you're not going to allow the best players to prove themselves because where is it most difficult to beat Djokovic and Nadal? It's in a best out of five match. 
It is not easy to beat them in a best of three, but it's easier to get them out of in a best out of three than a best out of five. And if they get rid of that, like the greatest matches in the history of tennis that we all remember are all best of five matches. Whether it's Borg McEnroe and Wimbledon, whether it's Federer and Nadal and Wimbledon, whether it's Djokovic Nadal at the US Open or whatever you, Djokovic, Federer, Wimbledon, whatever you pick, like these classic battles, they're all best of fives. And, um, and, and, and I hope that that's going to stay with tennis because it, it, it's, it would be a shame if they got rid of that. If they shorten tennis, yeah, I agree. I I, I think you need the storylines. I talked about this on the podcast before, but it's like a match is a story. If you don't leave room for a story to develop, what is it? It's just like a slug. Like if you do a tiebreak ten, there's no story in the tiebreak. I mean, you know, he we got three zero, and then it comes back. You know, it's not enough to really get yes. a hold of, right? So I think that's a worry, and I, I also share the worry sometimes that the organizations in tennis. I feel like they're not, you know, they, I mean, they're obviously trying their best, but I feel like there's too many organizations that it's just a little bit of a mess. You don't know what's happening with the tour from one year to the other. Now there's problems yes. with, the, with the balls. Uh, all the players it's complain true. about injuries. So there's a lot of things it's that are true. happening in tennis it's right true. now that you need to keep on top I agree. But like, I just want to add one more thing. Like, I do think that even with a short format, the best players will prevail. So and yeah. if, the, if the format gets shortened to just play one set up to six, I think you'll see the same guys at the top of the rankings because yeah. this is going way back. There was a huge prize money tiebreak tournament here in Florida and I played it and there was a couple of guys that were like with a high ATP rankings and every time they held this tournament it was the same guys who were winning. So when you remember um, ATP doubles, when they used to play you know, best of three and then they switched to the super tiebreak in the third, mm -hmm. the Bryan brothers were Number one with the old format, and they were number one with the new format. So, I think even with a shorter format, you still see the best players uh, at the top of the game. You know, I will, I will say that. Hmm. Yeah, it's just like a little bit, probably a little bit less entertainment sometimes. I think if it goes too fast, right? That's that's uh, for, yes, for yes, and I think that you not allowing um, the 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 best players to show their true um toughness and competitiveness and the difficulty of the other guys or 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 girls beating them that's what you you're robbing them of because like i said there's nothing tougher than beating um federer nadal djokovic in a best out of five match you know there's nothing tougher than that and that's why some of, that's why there hasn't been that many other grand slam champions now because i mentioned wta i i, I i'm Definitely in favor of bringing back best of five for the WTA because the WTA has horrendous marketing. And I had Eliza on my channel just like you did. Yeah. And she's great. Like she went to Cancun and she was exposing the the, the, the catastrophe that was this WTA finals tournament. But the marketing is awful. And it's done in such a way where um, the women are shown as inferior to the men like they it's okay for them to get coaching on the court and the, the the coach come on the bench but not for the atp then like you know in, in madrid um the female player gets a small cake and the male player gets a huge birthday cake you saw this like it's yeah, yeah, yeah it was for some reason it's like they were shown as the inferior sport they play the final on a saturday the men play the final on a sunday now some of this is also tradition and it's tradition, but 
they need to do a better job marketing and the women are highly capable of playing best out of five. They're the best athletes that you've ever seen on WTA. And I'm not saying play the whole season best of five, but why not just in the WTA finals make the final best of five like they used to have, used to do, or As make the final the yeah. at least. Yeah. yeah, or make the make the Grand Slam finals best of five. You see unbelievable matches. You see unbelievable matches, and then you know how they always say like they always say like oh the women's final was like even Kyrgios said this the women's final was like uh, uh, you know. Three and oh, and the men's final was eight six and the fifth or whatever, or seven six and the fifth or whatever it is. Um, and then they say like, "How oh, that's so unfair regarding the prize money and all that." So it's easy fix for WT. Just make best of five. Then you don't get those like 45, 50 minute matches in the finals anymore. Which, by the way, this can happen even in the men's. How how can you control that somebody doesn't blow the the other person out like? happened to Nadal against Federer at the French in the semis. Federer got like, I think, four or five games or something like that. So Final, actually. Was it the final? Hmm. I thought it was the semis. He got four um, games. Yeah, it was a depressing oh, final for a Fed fan. Uh, but wasn't there a semis too where he got him in the wind? No, but then, yeah, yeah, in the wind. But that was much later, I think. Yeah. Much later, yeah. Okay. The one he got four games for 2008, you know. Not oh, got it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> one, of my, one of my most beautiful memories. But... um. Yeah, anyway, I think WTA can do a much better job uh, with their marketing, you know? Um, I agree. And 100%. I, I think They're... that's the thing that they need to... Uh, I mean, they're getting in a new uh, CEO, but then the same guy stays as the director. I'm not sure that's the way to go, but we'll right. see. But they, they need to do something because I feel like the, the WTA product is very good. The players are obviously very, very good athletes. Yeah. You can make it entertaining, but I think also you lack that storyline if you don't do five sets. I think I, I really feel like the five set... That's where I am most excited about tennis. I love a five-set match. Like I, Me too. You can tune in and out of it. If you don't have time, that's fine. But yeah. you have, even if you win the first two sets, even an Iga, who's like an unbelievable like athlete, might still have a down in the third. And that right. opens the match up, you know? So it's, it, you, it's you bring that up, you know? It's a different thing, I think. Very true. Very true. And when you, one more thing I want to say about viewing habits, like, People often think that, you know, if it's a five, six hour match that you have to sit there for five, six hours. No, like, you know, like, I think when people like are just kind of casually watching tennis and they see a match that's in the fifth set and they're, they're going to, you know, stick there and watch it. Yeah. You know, they're going to stick with it. Um, and they a might not watch the whole the best watching experience. Like, I love it. I think it is. I think it's great. Yeah, um, the... Like, that's like the ultimate thing. It's like the 15th round in boxing back in the day when I had that before they changed to 12 or whatever. I guess the ultimate, like the ultimate thing in tennis is a fifth set, um, the ultimate battle. And it's just fun to watch and you don't have to watch the whole thing. Like, you know, you can be kind of in and out of it. Yeah. hundred percent. All right, man. Um, last question for me. We've been doing it for a long time as we can. Um, 600 calories per hour. You said, is that what you yeah. burn from tennis? Is it the best way to burn calories? You can, I think if you, play with a lot of intensity you, you can definitely burn 600 an hour for sure i think it's um one of the toughest sports of course i think the activity that burns the most is swimming yeah i think it's, it's i don't know exact numbers but i think swimming is by far the what, what burns the most calories but if you think about it like if you play three sets and these are tough sets three hour match it's a lot of calories that you're burning 1800 calories that's a lot you know, tennis mm -hmm. is, a, is a tough sport. Yeah, I agree. I think just a point for me that I've realized, like the more 
if you play tennis, if you want to have a like injury free or relatively injury free, you know, everybody gets injured, but um, is to do the, the the side work, the warm ups, and the the gym. Like for me, it's been a life change. I mean, I always did gym, but for a while I had a period when I did too much tennis and not enough gym, and it really right. hurt me. Like I think physically, I started getting like some some pain in the foot. I started getting some knee problems. Now that I'm doing like 50 50 gym and tennis or or something like that it's it's much better like i can recommend to everyone like actually put in the work to play tennis you will feel you will play better as well like it's a different oh, capable part yeah. so important yeah it's crucial to do like the before and after you know match prep and after the match take care of yourself so important yeah i think that's a good good thing to end on all right man we'll talk soon again we, we've been doing nice. two and a half hours as usual how long was it <laughs> two and a half hours Oh, you're not. You're gonna split it in two, or just do one? I can. What do you think? I, I I'm open to either. I don't know, man. I it's your channel, but I think maybe one would be better. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Well, I, mean, I people, don't know, but uh, people like you, so I, I think that's a good chance that they stay around for uh, for a long time. You know, so I don't really know podcasts. You, you're the pro there, but if if I was a podcast consumer, if I was a podcast consumer, like which I am one, if there was a part one and two. I generally don't like that. Like, just give me the whole thing, you know? Yeah. If I'm going to watch half of it now, half of it later, I'll decide myself. Exactly. You know? <laughs> so I think that, that is generally the thing. Like, if, if, if yeah. it's there, you, yeah. you are in charge of like, okay, I can right. put two hours of my time. I, a lot of people listen to podcasts like I do when I string rackets or they of do course. something passively, right? So, or driving. Are you, you, know, you string rackets yourself? Yeah, yeah, it's a machine right here. No way. What kind of machine you got? Oh, a fancy one. I have a uh, head uh, ET 3400. It's like the newest machine they have. Oh, wow. Very That's good. impressive. I need yeah, to stop by. It's a Rolls I Royce. I need to stop by. Stop by your place, man. Yeah, you, yeah you anytime, man. Looks You're like welcome. you have, have a fun apartment. Right. It looks I even like have you like a, a three-in-one machine to measure swing weight and shit over there behind me. Oh, wow. And how many rackets do you have total, do you think? Now I sold a bunch. Uh, so I maybe have 80-something, uh, 90. 80? Okay, yeah, eighteen, nineteen. I had more, but I sold a bunch. Wanted to get some space. My whole wardrobe behind is full of rackets. So, and my whole now bed is full, the guest bed is full of rackets. So I have to find a way, you know. But <laughs> I want to tell you something. Like racket storage is something that's tricky. Storing rackets. Very so tricky. I saw one time. This was um, funny. We already talked about him. Robin Sutherland. Yeah. Had had rackets in his house, and they were on this weird contraption that was holding rackets and there was tons of them there must have been like 20 of them mm -hmm. i was like i gotta get this somehow i don't know what this is but it's a beautiful thing that just holds racket and the rackets are like like the grip is sticking up so i need to find something where i can store my rackets where they're beautifully displayed um because right now they're just in bags and they're just like yeah, I'll, same. i like to have in bags yeah i like to find out the solution to where these rackets can, can be nicely displayed and easily accessible if you want to grab one to, to swing it or to show it to someone, you know? That would yeah. be my dream. So if you my, stumble upon something like that, let me know. Yeah, we maybe have to invent something. I, I've been looking because, like, my, <laughs> okay. my problem is um, is that, like, it's just like, I, oh, I want to try this, so com I need to restring this compared to someone asked me, can you bring the shift, the latest shift? I want to try it, the 1820. Okay. And, and then... I sometimes have organized by bag, but it's like, okay, it's the bag. I have the bag stacked. So I have eight tennis bags full of rackets, right? And yep. then I have to go to the bottom bag. I have to drag out the whole wardrobe to get one racket. You know? so it's a, it's not oh, the perfect wow. solution, really. You know? So I have to find That's a tough. way. That's tough. That's tough. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see for what I do. But uh, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun hobby, but it takes space. 
Right. Well, thank you for having me on, Jonas. I appreciate it, man. Same, same. I always enjoy it. And you're welcome to Marbella when we play some tennis. I'm, I'm happy to. Or if we see you somewhere around Germany. I'm going to travel to some tournaments. That's the plan. Uh, we'll um, see which ones. Uh, but, yeah. but it would be fun. It's always good. I think it's always good to go to live tournaments. It kind of ignites, ignites your love for tennis again. If you're just at home and watching tennis or, or playing on your normal courts. Yeah. I love just going on some travel, right? It's fun. It's fun. It's really fun. Yeah. It has a whole other thing to it. Yeah, it's fun. Exactly. It adds, adds extra. I, th- I recommend anyone that has a chance, like at least to watch like one live match. It's, it makes tennis completely different than watching on the TV. You know, it's like this. Oh, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. Much, much better pace. All right, man. Well, uh, we Jonas, keep in touch. Keep Thanks in touch, man. I wish you the best of luck in 2024. You keep killing it, okay? Same. All right, man. <laughs> All right. You take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.